right, you people. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Game of Crimes. Alo, hola, alo. Hola, amigos, amigos, players, favorites, we do that, <laughs> and literally everybody in between. I can't speak. I must have stole some of your meds when I was down there last week. That was funny. I was wondering what happened to some of these. The Percocets are low today. What do you mean? Per- what Percocets? I don't know anything about Percocets. <laughs> but I'm feeling good. Yeah, babe. No hey, guys, welcome back. Again, Game of Crimes, I am the host with the most hair, which is, I mean, that's indisputable. Morgan Wright. That's very true. But he was still a trooper. I mean, that doesn't change that fact. Oh, that this episode's going to change your mind about troopers. <laughs> hey, let me just say, all you troopers out there love you to death, man. I'm just busting his chops so he's he was one. It's like we do to the FBI. I can take it. Yeah. I can take it. Okay, that's good. All right. Well, hey, well like we pro- always say, you got thin skin. This is probably the wrong podcast to you listen have to. Picked the wrong profession, my friend. <laughs> hey guys. Anyway, welcome back. Before we get started, this is going to be a great episode. A long episode, four hours, so it's going to be two hours each day, but trust me, hang in there with us. Steve will tell you a little bit about it. It's going to be worth it. In the meantime, head on over to Apple and that Spotify. Hit those five stars for us. It helps out a lot, gets the show in front of people, and allows us to continue spreading the message. That is Game of Crimes. Also, head on over to our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com, for everything about the show. If, we, if one of our guests has written a book, it's going to be on there, pictures, uh, mailing list. Also, follow us on that internet sensation called social media at game of crimes on twitter at game of crimes podcast on facebook and the instagram but where you got to be you got to be on patreon and i will tell you steve we just released by the time this is out our 15th and finale episode of the real dea narcos on the real dea narcos cali edition we just released that and i'm telling you six 15 episodes but 16 hours of the most in even chris mm-hmm had me, I created written transcripts for every episode for his book because he's got stuff in there he forgot about, you know, so it's, it is the most in-depth analysis of the takedown of the Cali cartel anywhere in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you got that right here on Game of Crimes. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Here's how to order. Order before midnight and get a free toaster. Yeah. No, but guys, head on over there. We got a lot of good stuff coming out. We've got our Q and A this month's Q and A. We'll have a lot of stuff in it. Um, we've got a lot of questions. We do our uh, "You can't make this shit up." By the way, we ask people, "What do you What do you like?" Everybody like the "You can't make this shit up." They like the nine one one. So we're going to keep on doing those things for now. But we're, we're looking. Murph and I are contemplating what our next major um, series will be. You know, series within a series because we did. You and JP, the real mm-hmm. DEA Narcos on the real DEA Narcos. Then we did the follow-on, the companion edition, the real DEA Narcos, talking about the real DEA Narcos Cali edition. Mm-hmm. So now we have to figure out what we're going to do for our next series. Yeah, and it's uh, th- this is not an easy question because, you know, first of all, finding law enforcement officers, either active or retired, who are willing to give us as much time as it takes to, to record these. It's not something that everybody's willing to do. So, but we're we're not going to slow down. We're going to find something that we believe is really interesting. That's something probably that you heard about, and we're going to get something out there soon. So, bear with us just a little bit. We'll get it done. And get trust it done. us, it will be. Not, well, by the way, guys, this is all extra. This is above and beyond what we promise. Uh, what we always told you, we would uh, over deliver on our content. This is content that's not included. It's not even advertised as part of it. This is extra stuff we do to add value. So make sure you head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes and get your order in today. Also, um, you know, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but if you haven't figured it out yet, we never take ourselves serious. No, 
And uh, one of the ways we don't take ourselves seriously is, you know, we talk about stories. So we, we got away from small town police blotter for a while. We had some people say, hey, can you do something different? So we are. So we're doing kind of like we do a case of the month in our Patreon, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. But we, we're now doing a case of the week. And so, Steve, I told you I found it. I know what I wanted to talk about. If I were to say, think of the one town in the world, the one place in the world where where marijuana and red light districts is just absolutely permitted. You can walk around smoking weed all day long and hit the red light districts. What town are you thinking of? Uh, Copenhagen. Close. What's the other one? Uh, I don't know. With Amsterdam. Starts with Amsterdam. I see Amsterdam. Amsterdam. <laughs> and let me preface this by saying years ago, when they legalized weed in Colorado and Washington, I was on the community policing committee for the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And we did a session about what's going to be the impact of it. It wasn't political. It's like, okay, the law has changed. We're bound to enforce the law. What's going to be the political impact of it? And we actually had the Dutch police come over. They were part of our panel. And they talked about the impact drugs have had to them and the way they were looking at it, because everybody thinks you can go to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And uh, hit the cafes, you know, go hit the red light districts, walk around with weed, and everything's okay. Until, guess what, Steve? Until- As illegal weed shops appear to pop up all over New York City, renowned pot mecca Amsterdam is banning marijuana from the streets of the city's notorious red light district. It's part of a crackdown on bars and prostitution after years of complaints from locals that the obnoxious tourists are wrecking the city. There you go. Yeah. Starting Somebody. in the middle of May, now you have a little bit of warning. Now, it's not a total ban, but walking while puffing will be banned. Restaurants and bars will have to stop serving by 2 a.m. on Fridays and Saturdays, while brothels must shut down by 3 a.m. The And here's, here's what the government said. The afternoon becomes dire, particularly at night. A lot of people under the influence hang around for a long time. This comes at the expense of a good night's sleep for residents and the livability and safety of the entire neighborhood. Now, under Dutch law... Cafes can openly sell cannabis products as long as they do not create a nuisance. Now, no visitors will be let into the red light district after 1 a.m. on Fridays and Saturdays. The sale of alcohol is already banned after 4 p.m. from Sunday to Thursday. The sale of alcohol is banned after 4 p.m.? Are you kidding me? For how many days? From from Sunday to Thursday. Wow. And well, stores it just shows and cafes, you what's happened. That's what's happened over there. And cafes and stores will have to hide beer, wine, and spirits from public view during that period starting in the spring. Now, the Dutch capital's policy comes as the city, once known as New Amsterdam, is struggling with the recent legalization of recreational pot. So um, they're talking about New York. Small shops over the Big Apple are selling marijuana without a license, prompting Mayor Adams and Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg to announce a crackdown earlier this week. Guess what, New York Mayor Eric Adams said in launching his policy, he's a former police captain too with NYPD. He said, New Yorkers have had enough. Good for him. Good for him. You know, we, yeah. Javier and I actually spoke in Amsterdam and Rotterdam. Uh, this was pre-COVID. We were doing a, a Northern Scandinavian tour and in both theaters on, on all the shows were pretty much sold out over there. So there was a lot of interest and it wasn't anti-police. Uh, it wasn't pro-narcotics. You know, it was, uh, we had a great time with the crowd. But what this is telling you is that, I mean, look, we're, I know we're going to get people pushed back. Oh, you guys are just against weed. No, we just give you the facts. You decide. We're reporting places that have normally tolerated it, allowed you to have it, are saying, 
got, it's getting enough. And you know what it is, Steve? I think it's the point, right? It's that um, if you look at the difference between years ago and today, the potency is higher. So you smoke or use the same amount today mm. as you would have done 20 years ago. The effect is far more pronounced. Right. And that's what they're finding in these places. Look, I've been over to Amsterdam several times. We've walked around the whole area, saw everything, did the obligatory tour, walking through the red light district. I mean, it's 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 a unique site. You got to go over and see it. I was more interested in the Delirium Tremens bar uh, over in Brussels. So, you know, we, we hit over there, but I, I wanted to find the breweries, but you still with our Dutch police colleagues, you know, we looked at it and it's kind of like to the, to them now here, let me tell you during that time, you know what the bigger crime was what? rather than walking down the street, smoking marijuana or having an open joint, riding on a bicycle without a reflector. Well, okay then. Holy cow. Cause That's, that is part of their culture. <laughs> well, if you look at their uh, if you look at their metros and their train stations, the Dutch have a culture of they they ride bikes, and basically it's like community bikes. You'll get if somebody will ride a bike up there, they'll leave it. They'll pick up another one when they leave because somebody used that bike. So it's mm-hmm. like you're just passing these bikes around, and so it's not uncommon to see a mother going to the grocery store with a child like sitting in the basket and another one hanging on behind. And mm-hmm. they go get their groceries and they ride back on a bicycle. So I actually have a book from the Dutch police. It's called The Undutchables. <laughs> And it goes, it talks about their culture and stuff. So the reason we bring that up is that if you look out all over the world, I think it's a pendulum. You know, you go from one side where it's absolutely banned to where it's absolutely allowed. And then what happens is things happen, right? And now it's kind of maybe coming back to the middle to where we're stopping some of the stuff. But the biggest impact, Steve, with them, it's like it's the quality of life for the people who live in Amsterdam. They're just tired of it. You know, I've been interviewed on a lot of podcasts along with Javier, and I know you have two Morgan, and people will ask about legalization. And my response, my first response is always, we're cops. We don't make the laws. We're law enforcement. Okay, so that's up to the legislators. But the the other point I'd like to make is that before we legalize it, why don't we do a little research? First of all, we study history because we want to learn from our mistakes and we don't make the same mistakes again. That's that's why you study history, right? The truth is we study history, we forget about it, we make the same damn mistakes over and over again. So in this case, let's look at the countries where drugs, hard drugs have been legalized and how it's going for them. And there's not a single one, there's not a single country out there yet that has been able to make it work. But here we are, you know, we're the, the United States, the, the ugly Americans, we can do better than everybody else. And we're going to end up the same freaking boat, you know, as, as Amsterdam, as Copenhagen, as all the other countries, Portugal's yep. going through some messes now. The same thing's going to happen. You know, and even if it was done right, and that's, I think that's what's probably led to these limitations in Amsterdam, especially not selling beer for like three or four days a week, is that people come in and take advantage and they destroy what the locals have. And I'm, 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 I bet I'm 99% sure uh, the people that have caused the problems are outsiders. Oh, no, they all, that's, that's exactly what it is. It's all the tourists. It's the people that come in. They come in for the red light district. They come in for the, the cafes and everything. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, look, guys, we've had enough. So they're starting to crack back. Um, and actually, a lot of these places that have legalized things have criminalized them again because of the impact. But yep. I just thought it was interesting as we were looking around and we've talked about this. The reason I do this, too, it really ties in to the episode we're going to talk about today. But before we get into that, mm-hmm. so that's into reading on that. So, uh, and by the way, guys, make sure if you want to continue on the fun, uh, join our Game of Crimes fans page run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Yep. You just go there. You have to ask a couple of questions. Um, you uh, ask if you may be admitted to the inner sanctum, that which is Game of Crimes fans. And uh, if you just answer a couple easy questions, it's not that tough. Do, you know, 
make a wild guess, just do something and you'll be in. That's where we have a lot more fun too. There's a lot more jokes. People are connecting with each other and it's, it's community. It really is. And, and you get on there, you're going to see some funny stuff that you're not going to see in other places. Everybody has pretty thick skin from what I can tell. But what I'm also seeing now is that people are getting to know each other inside the fan page and they're looking out for each other. You know, you hear about people with, with medical issues. I just had my knee replaced. Uh, I can't tell you how many responses I've gotten from everybody. There's so many, I'm not going to be able to respond to everybody. But it's just, you know, other people are having uh, health issues, physical issues, mental issues, whatever it is. And you see the fans coming together and supporting each other. So I, I love what's going on there. Sandy, you're doing a fantastic job. Yep. Keep it up. And um, like I said, so go over there, have a little bit of fun. And we get a lot of our stories and our input. The other thing, too, is like I say, um, every now and then you just got to take one on the chin and people are going, hey, we should do a drinking game when Morgan has a problem finishing a sentence or doesn't do it. And I went like, ouch. That hurt. Hey, but guess what? That's what we're here for, guys. If we can't take it, if you think we can't take that, we never should have been cops. I mean, oh, no. trust me, that's oh, no. easy. That is easy. <laughs> Speaking of easy, Murph, what's easy is our next guest in terms of telling her story because we had to do very little of it. She did, I mean, I will tell you guys, I'm going to let Murph do the intro on this, but let me set the stage for you because normally our episodes follow four patterns. Um, we talk about Cosa Nostra, how'd you get involved in this thing of ours? Then we talk about a case they're going to talk about. We set context, then we talk about the case, and then we say, what are you doing now? But Rogina's, not Regina, but Rogina, and she'll tell you the origin of that name, where it came from. Her story was so compelling. We we spent four hours. This is this is one of our longer episodes because her backstory. She she wanted to go blah blah blah. We said no no no. Let's rewind. We spent an hour talking about her childhood, what she went through. So you take it from there, Murph. Yeah, this is uh, this is very special for me. I met Rogina Patterson King last year. Uh, when she was the DEA assistant special agent in charge of the state of Kansas. Um, I'd been invited out with the DEA Educational Foundation Project to speak at a, a not a summit, but a, they call it a real prevention. And it was a program that was encouraging high school students to come up with anti-drug uh, public service announcements. And let me tell you, I saw the, I, I was there, they had the five finalists and I got to see all their videos. And these are short 15, 20 second, maybe 30 second videos some of these kids are going, they're destined to be professional producers. But anyway, that was the first time I met Rogina. Uh, got to spend about a half a day with her, got to have lunch with her. She treated me. Now, you guys know I've been retired now for 10 years from DEA. I have no security clearances. You know, those have all expired. She treated me like, uh, you know, a king. I'm just to be real blunt. She was, it's like we'd known each other forever, which is pretty indicative of the law enforcement culture. Mm-hmm. You know, once people uh, introduce themselves and, you you know, you find you have things in common, it's real easy to make friends. Opened up her uh, conference room and let me work in there for the whole afternoon. Had TV crew come in and interview me. Then we went to the thing that night. But anyway, after just that short time with her, I asked her at lunch. I said, Regina, you've got to come on Game of Crimes. You've got to come on and tell your story. And I didn't know her entire story. In fact, I was pretty shocked by her background growing up, which you're getting ready to hear here. But... The other thing is, you guys know I'm DEA. I, I bleed blue. I bleed DEA. I'll be loyal to DEA the rest of my life. But you've also heard us criticize other agencies uh, when they are when they come up short. And you know what? In this particular case, there's several instances where DEA came up short. Do I still love DEA? Absolutely. Is DEA perfect? Not yet. Still working on that, right? But, but they're more perfect than the FBI, right? Always. That that wasn't even a question. <laughs> but the, the whole point is, you know, 
when things aren't right, we're going to bring them up on the table because we're pro-law enforcement. The, the personnel who are experts, who are heroes, who sacrifice on a daily basis, we want you to hear their story. So I really think you're going to love this one. Regina, just, I mean, listen, wait till you listen to her. You just like her and you haven't even seen her yet. Yeah. So the only way we're going to find out is if I ask you, Murph, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous and Kansas friendly game of all, (laughs) the game of crimes? All right, ladies and gentlemen, this one's a little bit different, but get in, sit down, shut up and hold on. Let's hear from Regina. Folks, if what well, we were told we can't record on visually, so only, but if we did, you would realize that next to our guest, I'm still the prettiest one on the podcast, right, Mark? <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> I, I'm a hard, mm. You have nice hair. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a con, that's kind of a backhanded con. Well, she has it's like a good say. I have a friend who like you would you like to go out on a date with her. She has a great personality. Oh, yeah. run away. Exactly. <laughs> good. That's a great comeback, Regina. Glad to have you here today. Well, Martha, I will let you do the honors. Oh, everybody, this is a this is a true honor for me. I had the pleasure of meeting this young lady last year. I uh, got to come out to uh, an event uh, at, that her office was sponsoring in the just summit. The, tell me, Regina, what was the name of the summit? Real Prevention. Real Prevention, which is a program to try to encourage kids to stay off drugs. And it was held in uh, right outside of Kansas City. And I got to meet for the first time ever the assistant special agent in charge who was in charge of all of Kansas and I think maybe a couple other offices out there. And that's Regina Patterson. That is a great state to be in charge of, let me tell you, Murph. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I said it was a great state to, to, to be away from. But um, but actually, you know, all my friends in Kansas, I, I love you guys. It's just it's Morgan. <laughs> I mean, what the hell can I say? It's just Morgan. And you understand. What? You it is not Morgan in Kansas. I'm doing so much in Kansas. I'm, no, I was it, born no, in Kansas. Morgan Wright. It, Morgan Wright is the part I have problems with. I was <laughs> born in Kansas. I was born at Fort Riley, moved around the world, ended up back at Fort Riley. And I'm the best thing that ever happened to the people in Kansas is you left. Well, <laughs> well, you, well you know, we had the Super Bowl in a couple of days. That's yeah. right. So, you, so yeah. are you saying go Eagles or what? <laughs> what? Well, I'm, I'm going to get slapped for that one, aren't I? What? Anyway. As long as the Cowboys aren't playing, I'm a Chiefs fan. <laughs> So, ladies and gentlemen, it's it's a true honor and pleasure to introduce you to Regina uh, Regina Patterson King, retired assistant special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration and former Dallas Police Department officer. Regina, welcome to the show, Game welcome. of Crimes. Thank you so much. All right. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> you may not say that when we finish. <laughs> You say that now. Just wait till it's over. Um, I reserve. I, you know, it's like the politicians. I reserve the remainder of my time just in case I need to call you a name. So, uh, hey Regina. So as we do with everybody, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. How did you, Regina Patterson King? Now, is it hyphenated? Is it all one word? A space between them? How does it work? It is hyphenated. But you can just call me if you Regina. It's fine. Now you said Regina, not Regina. Uh-huh. Correct. It's R O G E A N A. Named after who? I'm named after my grandmothers. My dad's mother's was Roberta, and my mother's mom was Ima Jean. So they put it together and came up with Rogina. Well, how about that? <laughs> yeah. <There you> go. <laughs> it, it could have been worse. <laughs> hey, it's, it's unique, right? <laughs> well, I, had, I took a report one night, and um, the girl was like 17 years old. I said, What's your name? She goes, Duena. I said, Duena. 
I was sorry. I was like, how do you, she says, yeah, my dad wanted a boy. And since I, he was going to name him Dwayne. And since I wasn't, he called me Dwayna. Oh, <laughs> sure. Okay. Poor kid. Poor kid. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rogina yes. Patterson hyphenate King. Tell us <laughs> thing of ours. How did you get started in the thing of ours? Because before we get started, we should probably let everybody know there's three of us on this podcast. And as I said on Sesame Street, one of those things is not like the other. So, so you started off in Dallas PD. You, it was tell us about that because um, you had some challenges because you you were black, you were female, and you were coming in at a time to where there wasn't a whole lot of those. Well, well going into the Dallas PD, I it was really great. I the academy was the academy. That means everybody's dirt <laughs> and you're learning. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but see, but you're jumping too far ahead. Rewind. Okay. Why did you want to join the, the police? I mean, were you, were, I assume, were you living in Dallas at the time? How did you come to apply at that police department? Well, actually it started, how do I say, it started when I was a kid. It's going to be sound very cliche-ish, but it's the truth. I was one of those kids that always wanted to be uh, an officer. I wanted to be a detective. Um, that's what was in me. I grew up watching Charlie's Angels, Cagney and Lacey, Jump Street 21, and seeing those shows. And I was like, I want to do that when I grow up. But I never thought I could because I was this skinny little girl, kind of awkward. And Growing I was up like, where? I grew up in um, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Texas. And so I just never verbalized that that's what I wanted to do. And so... When I went off to college, I actually went off to college originally in engineering because I was good in math and I could draw. So I said, I'm going to be a civil engineer. And I had taken um, computer-aided drafting in high school and was actually certified in AutoCAD. And so I was like, you know, oh, my mom There's like, a geeky term. I, I used to do that. We used to use AutoCAD to draw accident scenes mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. AutoCAD is a computer program. <laughs> and you know what this is, don't you, Morgan? <laughs> But when I went to the university, I was taking my engineering classes and calculus and all. Which university? I went to Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. And you're down there by Louisiana. That's like. Yes, right on the border, getting all that good Louisiana food. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, So I was there and I was just not really happy in those classes. And so I went to the career center and took a personality test to figure out what job fit, fit my personality. And when it came back, everything on there was like helping professions. Police was number one, social worker, nursing, things of that nature, everything helping profession. Engineering was nowhere on there. And I was like, okay, how am I going to tell my mom that I don't want to be an engineer? Because she was like, you're going to be an engineer because you'll make a lot of money. And so I said, well, because I still love law. So I said, I'll go to law school. I'm going to be a lawyer. And so... It's like I changed going to the my dark side. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I changed my major to pre-law business because I had taken business classes under my engineering. So I said I'll change it to that. And so I started taking my business classes and I started taking like criminal justice classes under my my major. I had this um, criminology class, which was phenomenal. The, the criminal mind is like crazy. And I was just like so engrossed in this class. And I was like, I don't think I really want to do 
um, business law. I think I want to do criminal law. And so I started taking more and more classes in that area. And I was very excited about it. But I'm also that type of kid that if I made a B on my test, I went to my professors and asked them, well, how can I make an A? There you go. <laughs> but one of my well, professors- Hold on, wait a second, Murph. Okay. <laughs> Talk about an overachiever here. If I got to be in college as much class as I missed every now and then, I'd be going, yeah, you're like, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. I was, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm that kid. <laughs> and I, I put really too much pressure on myself, but my, my criminal justice professor, he told me, he said, I know you, you want to go to law school. He says, but I think you're going to have a hard time. And I immediately th- thought, he said, I'm going to have a hard time because I'm a black female. What's, what is this about? And he said, he looked at me because he could see that I was getting offended. I'm like, what are you talking? He's like, let me clarify. He's like, and what I'm saying is because every time you, you don't get an A, you come to me and want to talk about how do you get an A next time, right? Which I think is great. He said, but in law school, you're going to have a problem because when you go to law school, You'll have a whole bunch of lectures and you'll do a whole bunch of assignments, maybe, but you don't have an opportunity to refute your grade or even probably talk to your professor. You'll probably be talking to like a PA or something. And and I was like, what? And he said, and the first thing they're going to teach you is how to defend bad guys. And I'm like, what? And I said, he said, I know because you want to put everybody in jail. And I was like, yes. And he was like, you're going to have a hard time. And I was like, oh my gosh. So then I had to like go back to the drawing board and like really think about it. And I was like, well, really in my belly, I want to put guys in jail. So I need to be a police officer. There you go. <laughs> hey, well, let you me know? ask you a question about that though. Uh-huh. Um, let's go back to growing up and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I want to look at, cause today, I mean, there's a lot of issues between the police and the public and not all of them are the police's fault, right? I mean, there's, there's right. a lot of issues, but, but, but there's, I don't think you would, it would be hard to find somebody with that motivation now as it was when you started. What was it about growing up the era you did that didn't kind of prejudice you that way or jaundice you that way to where you you didn't have such a negative view of law enforcement that you wanted to go into law enforcement? Yeah, well, when I was growing up, law enforcement, they were the good guys. They were there to protect you and you could trust them and there was no, I don't I don't know how when the, the swish happened, but we trusted the police. Regardless if they looked like us or not, we trusted them because we knew that they were there to protect us. Did you ever have any encounters as a youth with the police? No, I did not. I of have. course not, because other, you were straight other, A bookworm, you know, at home. But, but, but no, but let me tell you what was happening when I, when I, my senior year is when crack was well, basically like my junior, going into my junior, senior year, crack hit. Of high school or college? High school. Crack, like. It was like a bomb was hit and was dropped in the community. And my father um, became addicted to crack. Um, Several of his siblings became addicted to crack. And it just tore families that we may have been middle class or poor, but we really didn't know we were poor. Families that we had good family structures tore it apart. Because crack made you not want anything but crack. So you saw communities that were nice homes become communities that look like war zones. And for me, when my professor was saying, you just want to put bad guys in jail. Yeah, I want to put drug traffickers in jail because they have destroyed my community, destroyed my family. 
Um, so that was what happened with your dad. My, well, my dad. So, and he allows he allows, allows me to talk about this now <clears throat> because he has recovered. He is he's been drug free since two thousand and five. Oh, great! Excellent. But Excellent. he he um he always smoked marijuana since the time I was born. I knew the smell of marijuana. Um, I didn't necessarily know what it was, but I knew about it. And I guess when crack came, because when people say that marijuana is a gateway drug, I believe that to be true because it gave him a false sense that he could try something else. And that one try for him and his siblings were addiction. There was no going back after they tried it. Um, You know, not to go off on a tangent, but that's a great point because we've done a lot of interviews uh, on other podcasts and and, and different media. And, you know, we, we get presented with that question about what's your opinion on legalization of marijuana. And, and I throw out the gateway drug thing and I agree with you 110%. The thing that gets me is the people that uh, usually get really upset when I say that, you know, they call me an old out of touch. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. You know, you've been retired too long. Uh, marijuana should not be illegal, all that. This is a, this is a real life story that our listeners are listening to now and your family where you recognize it at a young age, and certainly it did give your dad the confidence to try something better or stronger, something you know different that led are, to are, addiction. Are, yeah. It, it lowers that barrier. If I'm already smoking marijuana, then it's not a, but if, if, but if you are, it, like, if you've never done that and marijuana is the first barrier and you cross that, then it's easy to take the next step. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, the analogy I used when I was a kid. You know, somebody stole a beer out of, out of dad's uh, liquor cabinet. You know, we were our young teenagers and we all took a drink and it tasted like crap, you know, but you had to be cool because you're in front of your buddies. And then the next thing, you know, somebody brings over a part of a bottle of wine and then you go up to liquor and it just continues, progresses. Yep. Yeah. It just, I find, I find it amazing that people can't see the connection there, how you get comfortable with this. So you try something else, you try something else, just like your career. Once you learn how to do the basics of a law enforcement career, then you step up and and I'll stop talking now because this is your interview. Sorry. <laughs> no, I agree a hundred percent. And also I believe that there are some innate things in us that cause you to be, a, to be addicted quicker than others. Like for example, maybe if my mom would have tried it because she doesn't have that same addictive tendency within her, she, it didn't affect her and she could walk away from it. But when I look at my family, that's like if you have a family of alcoholics, there's a reason there's a family of alcoholics. That's in there somewhere. So for me, when I saw that, I was like, I'm not trying no drugs. Good for you. Because I may like it, you know, and then yeah. I'm addicted. So it's just like, mm, stay away from it. But I what just kind of to- a, What kind of an impact did that have then on you when, when he first started using crack? What was it like? I, I, the reason I'm asking is, I mean, I think people need to understand that's one reason why I wanted to go back because so many people, that's one of my, so many people want to gloss over and they go, yada, yada, yada. No, the goal for this interview is really digging a little bit deeper. And so with you, it's like, I had no idea until we started talking that about that. Mm-hmm. How did it affect your family though? How did you, how did it affect your living? How did it affect your relationships? You know, when this thing happened, how did it affect you guys? Well, I'll tell you, my dad, when he actually started using crack, my freshman year of college. So I was away. <laughs> so I didn't get to see when, when I was seeing the crack epidemic happen, I was seeing my friends. Um, I was seeing drive-by shootings because you have teenagers that are selling drugs for these drug traffickers that are making all the money. I had friends that 
parents would tell them, you go out there and make the money. And I'm like, oh, no. Man. Yeah. And it, it was just, so that was my, I thought in someone else's world, I go off to college. My sisters who are still home are witnessing my father's down slope into crack. And they didn't tell me because they didn't want me worrying because I'm off at school. So I found out probably um, during like the summer break of my freshman year that my father was using crack because (laughs) I went to his house and the house looked like it was falling apart. Um, He wouldn't come to the door. And that's when my sisters proceeded to tell me that he was doing drugs and he was not letting anybody see him. He was basically living in a house with no electricity, nothing. Did your parents split up during that time or before? No, my parents divorced when I was in third grade. Okay. My dad was still around, but they were not together Yeah. from the third grade. Yeah, they divorced. So you guys were, you guys were used to being on your own, but seeing your dad like that, it's like, uh, I mean... For me, it would be kind of one of those things is you first, your first thought is how could somebody live like this? Like you say, no electricity by yourself, right? When is, when the first time that you saw him after you knew that he was uh, hooked on crack, you know, addicted, how much had his appearance changed? Uh, drastically. So, so much so he didn't want us to see him. So I really didn't even see my dad. Um, I would occasionally get a letter from him or um, talk to him because he may have been at my grandmother's house or something like that. But I didn't, he would not let us see him during that time. And you said he, he finally got clean in 2005, but 2000. let's put this in perspective. When did this start? And I was in, for my freshman year of college was 19, I graduated in 1990. So it would have been 1990. <laughs> so we're talking, it, it took 15 years to get clean. Yeah. A lot of prayers. <laughs> Yeah. Well, are you surprised he didn't die? Um, yes and no. I say yes because he was so engrossed in it to the fact that like he was homeless. Um, and yeah, but we, I, I did a lot of praying. I believe in prayer and I did a lot of praying for him and I kept asking God just to, to, to protect him and to help him, you know, and he did, even though it took all that time because we still have free will and he all had right. to have the will and the want to get clean. And then 2000, huh? I mean, that's, you know, it's a success story. I love the, that you bring in the fact that, that God intervened and I, you know, I'm a believer as well as Christian and, and believe in the power of prayer. And, and I'll probably get some nasty comments about saying that on here, but hey, you got to stand up for what you believe in, right? Exactly. And I'll tell you, my dad's story is, when I, when I asked him, well, you know, what made you get clean? Cause he never went to rehab, but he said, baby girl, he said, I got to the point where I was taking the, 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 the crack. He was blessing the crack. Like he would bless a meal cause he knew the Lord. Um, so, and he just got to the point where he said, I don't want to do this anymore. I want my family. I want my life back. And he prayed and he said the next day he didn't, he didn't have a taste for it. And he never went back. He had to move out of the environment that he was in, yep. and and he's been clean ever since. But Love not it. a rehab; it. it was a prayer. <laughs> and, and what year did you? I'm sorry, I said 2005. Was that the right year? Did that is okay. correct? Yeah, 15 years. I mean, that and was it crack the whole time, or did he move on yeah. to anything else? Nope, that was it. 
Excellent. He hasn't done marijuana or crack since. <laughs> that, that right there is a story in this interview. If you don't get anything else of it, I love the story here. <laughs> well, but the thing is, if we had just dived in while I joined the Dallas Police Department, nobody would have understood what your life was like. That Because the reason I dug is when you said, I wanted to put bad guys in jail. Well, the question is, why? We dug a little bit. You know, now it's like, what a story. I mean, yes. I, you know, the thing is, with your parents being divorced like that, you at least were growing up in a stable environment during that time. It would have been different if your parents were still married and these things were tearing the family apart like that. Not that it didn't, right? But that was kind of helped you out a little bit is that you had a separate home that you could go to that was kind of free of that, right? Correct. Correct. My mom How'd your mom handle it? it? Um, and your siblings. Your, so what do you have? Well, my, sisters, I, brothers? I, I'm the middle of two sisters. Uh, it's three of us. I'm the middle. And my sisters, they are... Because they, like I say, they saw him in his downslide. I didn't see it. So they're a little bit more hurt because it's like you chose drugs over us. Um, so they're still in that, how do we heal? Even at today, um, they love my dad. But at the end of the day, they're still They're still hurt. They're yeah. still hurt. Yeah. And my mom, I think she was, she just completely disconnected altogether. She was like, that's him. I'm over here doing my thing, making sure my girls are taken care of. And, you know, so. Did drugs she had or- it hard too, because that made, when they divorced, she had to work basically three jobs to take care of us. But she told us, she promised us, she said, I will always have, give you guys a nice place to live and we will never be on welfare. And she did that. My mom didn't graduate from college. She only graduated from high school. She wanted to take some college classes. Um, she like took shorthand and stuff like that because she was an administrative assistant. But she promised us that. And I tell you, we always had a nice place to live, even though early on we would like be at the nice place for like a month. Because I guess it was like a move-in special. And then after the month, we'd be moving somewhere else. Um, but it was always nice places. And she never went on welfare. Uh, but she worked multiple jobs and we had to learn quick to take care of ourselves while she was at work. What, what a beautiful lady that recognized the significance and the importance of taking care of your children, regardless of whatever, and stepped up to the plate and didn't take handouts. I mean, wow. Yeah. You know, we're so quick to throw out that title hero just because somebody shows up to play a soccer game as a kid, you know, but that's a hero right there. She took the responsibility and didn't shuck it off from somebody else, man. Nice she lady. raised good girls. We're all doing good. And yeah, I look back now because I felt like she was very strict on us because she was like, I'm at work. Don't leave the house. It's like, really? You want us to stay in the house? <laughs> so we'd have our friends come in the house. And one day she busted us having a, a party in the house. <laughs> like, I was wondering why the food was disappearing so much. You know, well, mom, you said for us not to leave the house. You didn't say anything about anybody coming over coming to in the, the house. house. <laughs> yeah, we, we were kids. Are, kids don't really understand the stuff that happens when your parents are struggling to put food on the table and you're inviting all of your friends over to eat the food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah, but man, she, so um, but do you remember the reason why they got divorced? Did anything of it have to do with drugs or alcohol or anything, or was it just more relationship? Um, I th- I think I can talk about this. My um, because we I've talked to my dad about it, and my mom, my dad was could be very abusive. Um. All Physically these years, or emotionally? Well, all these years, I just, I knew it emotionally because he was, he could say some things that could cut right through you and make you feel about this big. And he would do that to my mom and, and demean her. Um, 
I thought because I could see him, I could hear him and see him when he was angry that he had the potential to put his hands on her, but I never saw it. But as an adult, I've talked to him about it and I've talked to my, my mom and there was physical abuse. Um, and so she just, she, she needed to get out of that because she really wanted to like go to college and get an education. And he was like, no, you stay home, take care of the kids. I got this. And she didn't want that along with the fact that he was abusive, you know? So, but he's very apologetic now. Um, but unfortunately he did not know how to, to love his wife, um, and control his anger at that point in time. So, and you know what, during that time, that would have been so hard with a black woman with three children to divorce and go off on her own. And just the the fact that she did that and still worked all those jobs to keep you guys out. I mean, I don't want to say that's unheard of, but man, you would not, if you were looking at it, you would not predict that you guys would have been successful. You wouldn't have predicted that she would have maintained that. It would have been one of those things, you know, backslide into, you know, something, right? I mean, how how does she manage to do it? And I don't know. My mom has a, some, power within her because her her family wasn't really supportive of her because she got married. I mean, she got pregnant with my oldest sister when she was 16, had me two years later, and then my baby sister two years later. So with her getting pregnant at 16, her family just kind of wrote her off because they, they were, her family were, they were not poor, but they were not rich, but they were like well-to-do family. And they just felt like, Okay, well, now you you got this baby. You got to take care. So she went to work and started to do what she needed to do to raise my oldest sister. Um, but it, 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 it was it's really hard because she did what she could to take care of us and worked. And every time she had to, when I say had to ask family members to help, it was they would like demean her. It's like give you an interview to because I'm asking you to give me a couple of dollars to help put food on the table for my kids. And and I would see how that made her feel. And I was like, this, that's just crazy. This is not what family is supposed to look like, but she really didn't have that family support that she could go to. So she just had to do what she had to do. It's heartbreaking. It, it really is. And, and, but I mean, what a testament to her work ethic and her commitment. You know, we talk a lot of, on game of crimes about, um, and people ask us, you know, how could you be a cop for this long and how could you be successful? And, you know, you, I mean, one of our things is being able to focus on your mission. You know, you got to maintain that focus and, and you never give up. And boy, your mom, she just lives up to every one of those cliches. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, Steve, you know what episode this reminds me of? Who? Sherry Foster. Oh, yeah. Did you know Sherry Foster, Regina? She was a DEA agent. She was GBI and then became a DEA agent. She was, let's see if I can find her episode here. But as he's doing that, she had similar upbringing. She had a problem with her mom, uh, her mom. And she talked about on the episode, found out she was gay. So she's living with another woman. It became very bad for her. Uh, You know what? I'm amazed. And this is why we want to tell stories like this. People look at you and they'll say, oh, yeah, you had a couple struggles. Yeah, we get it. You were black. You were female. But hey, look, look where you are today. And, And people don't realize do you realize what you had to overcome just to get to that point to where you could be in the academy? Well, I mean, even, even even before that, when my parents divorced, I'll give you some context. So when my parents divorced, we came, we left from a, I guess, for in my mind, a middle-class black neighborhood, all black. Um, only time we would see people that were not black was when we would go out maybe to a grocery store somewhere different. But our world and my teachers at my school um, some of them were white. 
but I was like an all, I was a straight A student at this school. So we get, my mom gets divorced from my dad, moves us to a, a city called White Settlement. <laughs> yes, that's what it's called. Say White what? Settlement. That's the name <laughs> of the city. White Settlement, Texas. Um, and me and my sisters were the only blacks in the whole school district. My, my, me and my younger sister were at the elementary level. And, but my younger sister is light complected. So she didn't have a biggest problem as I did, um, going there. And it was weird because kids don't know there's difference unless you tell them there's a difference. But it was one kid in the class that was just like, he, that was the first time I heard the N word. And I went home and I told my mom and I was like, she explained it. And I was like, well, how, how did we get to call us that? And so then I started beating up the little kid, you know. <laughs> Wait a minute, Miss Goody Two-Shoes? But I'll go back. I was not always, because I, I had that same temper, temper that my dad had. So if someone would make me mad, we're not talking about it. Before you know it, I didn't pop you in the mouth. And that was something I had to grow out of because I probably would have been ended up in jail or something. But I did have that same fight in me. And so me and this little kid would fight. Um, I'm going, I don't know how I got on this, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. Then I'm going to go back to tell you what my problem was. So this kid, he would literally want to fight me every day. I have a weak eye to this day because he threw a brick at me, knocked me out with a brick. Yeah. Dang. Um, yeah. Straight up brick, threw a brick at me. Um, and what I realized when this guy's father came to the school, this guy's father was beating the crap out of him on a daily basis. And that's all he knew. And that's all he knew. And then when I saw that, I was like, oh, my gosh, he's just angry because, you know, and he's just taking it out because hurt people hurt. And I started to have empathy for him. And we actually became friends. And all of my other classmates, even though I was different, we were just my best friend was Kelly Smith. I don't know where you are, Kelly Smith, but I still love you, girl. Um, sh- literally, we learned from each other. At that time, I had like a jerry curl, which is where they oh, curl yeah. your hair and you have uh, to put I, this. I was in college. I remember that. You'd see the guys, they put it on, then they have the plastic over their head to make sure it's Listen, set. And- if you guys could see my face, I hated having this curl, but it was easy because my mom didn't have to do anything to our hair, but I hated the, the greasy stuff that we had to put in our hair. And so my friend Kelly, she had big Texas hair with the hairspray. Oh my God. So, yes. <laughs> was it blonde? So I, yes. Blonde. So yeah. I was at her house. Um, and I said, she said, we want to see what each other's hair products will do to each other. So she gave me her hairspray. I gave her my glycerin and you could just imagine that was a hot mess. <laughs> my hair was so hard and her hair was so greasy. Her mom was like, what did y'all do? <laughs> <laughs> and we just started laughing because, yeah, it, that was a mess. But that was growing up and learning. But what happened at that school is I had, I couldn't read, guys. I was not reading on a third grade level. I knew I had an issue, but no one else knew I had an issue. That was the secret I was keeping. And at my new school, I, they would have, like, you have to read out loud. I never had that issue before, because at my other school, we never had to read out loud. We do our work. We turn it in. All is dandy. But we were actually required to read out loud. And we had spelling tests that were like all the same letter. Like we'd have a spelling test. They were all B words. Right. And so anytime we would have to start doing open class reading, I would literally 
be like, I have to go to the restroom. Can I go to the restroom? Or I would come up with some reason why I couldn't read when it was my turn. Or when we were doing our spelling test, because I couldn't read the words, I just would memorize the letters. And my teacher, Miss Burrell, who, like I say, is my lifesaver, she noticed that I would have the word spelled correctly, but on the wrong line because it wasn't the, the right word. So what I would do is I was like, um, bat. That sounds like this word. And I'd write it on the line. So I'd have the, all the words spelled right, but on the wrong lines because it may have not been the right B word. And so she had me staff their classes. People were going to, the kids were going to like lunch or something. And she said, Regina, can, can you read this, read this for me? We, she pulled out our, our class book and I was like, I just started crying. And she said, Gina, it's okay. She said, I know. She says, you have a problem reading, right? And she was like, and I just kind of shook my head, yes. And she says, that's okay. She said, but you know what? You are brilliant because what you do is you memorize the letters. She said, that is amazing. She said, because you have the word spell right. It's just on the wrong line. So that's okay. We're going to get you help and we're going to you know, fix your reading. And I, she says, I'm going to have to call your mommy. And I was like, don't call my mom because I'm, <laughs> I'm a straight A student from my other school. How am I going to now she's going to be like, how can she not read? But my parents never, you know, like sat down with homework or anything like that. So they did not know. And so when my my teacher brought my mom in, my mom immediately got, what are you talking about? My child can't read. My child can read. And I just started crying. And I was like, I, I can't I can't read. And so from then I had to take like the special ed classes. And my sisters, who supposed to love me, they start calling me, oh, you little dumb black girl, you can't read. And I was just like, I couldn't believe it. That was like, so I made up in my mind that nobody was ever going to be able to call me dumb, that I was going to learn how to read, and I was going to do what I needed to do to make sure that nobody could ever say that to me. So that was also a transitioning point in my life because that now allowed me to get that, that secret that I was holding out so that I could get the help that I needed. And see how much we would not have known if you had just said, well, yeah, so I got onto the Dallas PD and <laughs> look at this. Well, see, I love the way you just d- dug in, you know, pull it out of me, Morgan, pull it out of me. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking this is one of the most inspirational interviews we've ever done. And it's, we're not even 30 minutes into it here. <laughs> well, cows. and can I, can I share something too with, on the, the, the religious side regarding my reading? Please do. Yep. So, tell you, I couldn't read my reading books, right? But my grandmother, my dad's mom, who, I mean, she was a prayer warrior and she prayed for me and she was a teacher. Um, she taught math. And so when she found out that I was having some problems with reading, she got me, I don't know if you guys remember these, the little bitty old Testament, um, little pocket Bibles. Mm -hmm. She got me one of those. She got me one of those. And she said, you can, you can start, you can practice your reading from this. I literally, as soon as she gave it to me, I could read the Bible, that little New Testament Bible, but I couldn't read my school book. How is that possible? The Bible is way harder than reading some third grade book, but I could read it and understand it and tell her what it was about. That let me know there is a God. (laughs) And and back in that time, it was probably the King James Version, which even as an adult, it's hard to understand. (laughs) It was. It was the King James Version. It's a little green. I have it somewhere around here in my house still to this day, a little green New Testament Bible. Excellent. Uh, And see, well, the reason we do this is because we're trained criminal investigators. I used to teach interview and interrogation. It's like, no, you're not getting out of this. Anytime somebody goes, we had something delivered to go and blah, blah, blah. I said, no, 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 no. (laughs) 
<laughs> bring it back. Bring it back. Bring, let's us, go back. Give us the details. <laughs> yep. Well, look at look at all of this that formed. Because see now now when I think about you joining the police, I now it's a whole different perspective. Because now you've got to take tests. Now you have to be able to study. I mean, you you, you got college too, right? So I mean, you're, you're doing that. So let's finish up uh, your stuff on college, and then talk about that because you said you changed to pre law. I changed business. The- and then pre-law more criminal business, justice. Pre-law business first. And I was taking, I took a, a couple of more criminal justice classes and decided I was going to change my major to pre-law um, business. Got stuck on economics. I did not understand economics and how that works <laughs> and statistics. Those two classes, I was like, this is a no-brainer. I'm not going to get a degree in business because I can't pass these two classes because they don't make here's sense. The, here's the person that was getting A's in calculus, and you couldn't you couldn't do <sighs> statistics? I could, I, it didn't make sense. It just, none of that made sense to me. I couldn't understand, especially economics, how a person, you need, you have to work, yet you have child care, and you have to decide the, the, that was the welfare conversation and why welfare and that welfare was really not set for you to come off and to be able to live. It's basically to keep you hijacked. Well, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is, I don't like this. Is that what they were saying? Or is that, was that your belief when you said that? Um, that, that was my belief, how they were interpreting the, the process of how economics works. And when we got on, when we were talking about the part in relation to welfare, I was just like, well, it's not set up for a person to actually prepare themselves to get off of it and be able to live a life, it's set up to, no, we need to keep you there because if you go get a job, then we're going to take this away from you. So if you take, if you take it away from me, I may not be able to pay for childcare versus letting me stay on it, get my job, keep my cal- my um, childcare capabilities. And then once I have those things established where I can make more money, I don't need the welfare, then reduce it, but not in the process because that doesn't equip me to be able to come off of it because it's like the more you, you try to better yourself, the more you lose. So it's like something needs to fill the gap and the gap just wasn't being felt, felt and like, it's so funny. I'm, I'm talking about it now. I probably could have passed it, but I just got frustrated <laughs> with the class, but statistics, I really just didn't like it. I was just like, I don't like it. It's funny she that because there was, I don't know if you remember a governor, he ended up becoming secretary of uh, health and human services. I think Tommy Thompson from Wisconsin. One of the changes he made to their welfare system, that because he agreed with that, one of the things he wanted to do was stop the perpetuation of people having children, you know, because anytime you got a child, you got more money and exactly. it's just kind of an incentive. He stopped it at two because he said the real world is, is that, look, um, your mom had three kids. If she wanted to have four kids. Maybe I had to pay for those four kids. Had to pay for those four kids. Yeah. yeah, that's why there's only three. I I yeah. figure I figure after me, my mom could only stomach one more kid after what I did to her. But um, and I worked for Child Protective Services for two and a half years before going to the Dallas Police Department, and I would see that general generational families welfare. on welfare, and they were like, "Oh no, if I have another kid, I'll get more money." I'm like, "Are you, is, are you serious? Is that your expectation? I'll keep having kids because I'll get more money." Yeah. Well, see, but but that's what I'm saying. All of these things, in a sense, the universe is conspiring against you, but yet you still figure out how to navigate the system, how to get through it. I got to tell you, I mean, look where I grew up in. I had the advantage of moving around the world. I was exposed to many different cultures from Iran, you know, North Were Carolina. You military? Military? Yeah. Okay. Army. Yeah. Hoo-ah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so for me, it wasn't a shock when I went to college and we had different races there. I mean, yeah. t- some of my 
uh, sweet mates, my roommate or people on the same floor as me were from Iran. This is during the Iranian revolution. I mean, yep. it was, it was not that different for me. It was more unique. There were some people they'd go to the city. They'd never seen black people before, never seen Asian people before. It's like, Oh my God, you know? And so in spite of all of that, that's what I'm saying. There's so many things conspiring against you yet. You still wanted to go in and do this kind of work. I said the best thing my mom could have did was move us to white settlement because that exposed me to different cultures. And that, and now I love cultures. I love people because I just love people. No matter what you are on the outside, it's what's the content of your heart, what's your character. The, the words of Martin Luther King, I mean, this is not getting tried. I mean, this is like, really, if you think about that, don't judge them by the color of the skin. You judge them by the content of their character. I think of it from a military and a police standpoint. Look, you cut us, you shoot us, we all bleed red. Brothers, right. sisters, you know, exactly. doesn't matter. And when you want somebody in the fight, I want somebody in the fight who's got it in their heart. To, I don't care if you're half my size. I've seen people half my size. That's right. <laughs> like you. Yeah. No, you don't, don't, I can just see you out on a, don't you make me mad. <laughs> it's so funny. When, yeah. we, when I was a kid going into to middle school in, in uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, just below Nashville, that's when they started the integration and, and the busing of white students into black schools and black school students into white schools. You know, where I went to elementary school, Right now, I can't tell you if there's a black kid there or not, because that wasn't anything that we paid attention to. And they bust us into a black middle school there in Murfreesboro, and you had just new friends. It didn't matter exactly. what color anybody was. The only people having a problem with it were the adults. The kids were getting along fine. If you put kids from all different nationalities, races in a sandbox, they're going to play together unless you draw, make some distinction. They don't care. Yep. It's like, you have a toy. I have a toy. You want to play? Let's play. They don't exactly. care. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and it, it takes the adults to really, I, I don't want to say poison their mind, but they don't, they're not born with that. You know? Exactly. Right. It's, you know, exactly. it's environmental. So, yeah. so, but continue on. You're, you're in, you're in college here, you know, you've decided that statistics, by the way, you know, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, as they say. There's what? Uh, there's <laughs> lies, damn lies. That's what Mark Twain said. There's lies, damn lies, and statistics. The other thing is... <laughs> I like it. <laughs> what are when you're drunk? It's kind of like the equivalent between statistics and a drunk leaning on a light pole. It's used more for support than it is illumination. Um, that's jokes about statistics. I took it, and I'm telling you, man, if I never Does had it to do statistics, uh, always tell me that you can make the stats me say whatever well, you need them to say. <laughs> it really, it'll, it's a lot about interpretation. But I mean, when you start looking at, um, you know, why is it that you can interview? 1,024 adults and have a statistically valid sample, you know, level of confidence, you know, 3% margin of error, 2% margin of error. Why? When, you know, you kind of learn some of that stuff, but it's like, are you kidding me? If I had to do this every day, I'd die of boredom. But let's, let's get, let's get back to you, Rogina. So <laughs> you like Rogina, Regina, Gina? What, what's your... I, I answer to it all. My friends call me Gina. They call me Roro. They call me Ro. It's whatever food you feel comfortable with. Go with it. <laughs> all right, Gina. We'll call you Gina. Okay. As you were completing college, what decisions did you make about what it is you wanted to do? Were you going to go to law school or did you say, eh, what happened? Uh, no, I, I veered away from law school after having a conversation with my professor and then I was all in for criminal justice. Like I said, I love my criminal justice classes and I'm like, I'm going to go into criminal justice. But I also had a little pivot um, in that that process because I had the honor of working for the Dean of Students, Student Affairs as a work study job. And he started talking to me about being in student affairs at a university setting. And I was like, hmm, cause I was involved in my college. I was like the president of our student center and 
doing all these, bringing all these acts and shows and events to the school. So, hey, what's the, so I was on the Memorial Union Activity Board in college, kind of something uh-huh. similar, right? We brought bands. Who, who were some of the bands you got to come to your college? Oh my gosh, that's so long ago. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was I will tell you one band we got to come and they were never invited again because they tore everything up. It was the Atlanta Rhythm Section. And really? well, it was a great band back then. They had some, you know, um, uh, they had some great imaginary lover, you know, they had some really great songs, but he was up there. He says, Hey, you know, welcome everybody. And then he goes, but for those of you on Quaaludes. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And then they tore, then they tore up the, the, the dressing rooms where they were at, but we had like the Doobie brothers, Hall and Oates, Pablo Cruz. I mean, just a, a little river band. I mean, I'm dating myself, but it's like, it is so cool to see bands now that I'm listening to the eighties mix and my kids are going, what the hell is that? That was, that was my stuff. You know, the BGs, you know, that stuff. That's so sad. I can't remember all any of the only person that's coming to my mind is Tracy Chapman. The oh, acoustic yeah. guitar, we had her come. But that's the, I, everybody else is a blank. We had comedians come and I can't I can't remember them. Speaking either. of that, you know, comedians <laughs> they don't do uh they had they've testified before Congress. You got the, all of these comedians, they won't do college campuses anymore. Why? What happened? It's just it's this whole thing about you know, students are offended by everything, they're triggered by everything. And so the whole Gosh. purpose of comedy is to push yes, the envelope you know exactly. it's to make we're what happened to how did, how did we become too sensitive okay look now i'm gonna get blasted because i think we as americans have to stop we need to, we have to be able to laugh and laugh at each other and laugh at the things that we do that you know somebody in your household or your family's doing it's not yep. and let me tell you the comedian i think has his finger on the pulse and knows how to punch all the buttons in america two of them ricky gervais and dave Chappelle. yes <laughs> Funniest, funniest, funniest skit Dave Chappelle ever did. <laughs> he was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> I have he, not seen that, but my oh, husband you, talks about it. He's like, you it's hilarious. See that. And so they're they're like, nope, they didn't want anybody to know he's got the hood on because he's yes. blind. He doesn't uh-huh. know he's black, but he's and then and then later on they're sitting there talking to him after he's exposed. He's sitting on the porch rocking back and forth because his wife was white. Uh-huh. Because why'd you divorce your wife? Well, it's because she married and he used he uses the N-word liberally. Because uh-huh. she married an uh-huh. N-word, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean just it's crazy. Shit. But what I'm saying is the comedians, that's what I'm saying. People are so sensitive now. They get triggered by everything. It's like, can you imagine being that way, being a cop or being a, even in child protective services? If you don't have a thick skin, you are not going to survive and work like this. No, you, you will not. You will not. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. When it comes to anything for entertainment, it's primarily based on conflict. They present something that gets you involved in there and you have a difference of opinion. And that's how it goes. You know, Ricky Gervais and his evisceration of everybody at the last Golden Globes he did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's talking about um, uh, who was the guy that they had for the Oscars? Um, Kevin Hart. You know, and they because of a tweet he did like 10 years ago. And he says, hello. And he's looking at him, he says, Ricky Gervais. I mean, but, but the thing <laughs> is, Ricky nailed it. He says, people don't listen to the context. They jump immediately to something, but they don't understand the context of the joke. And so anyway, we kind of got off track, but what I'm saying is, yeah, to your point is that, but I'm, but it's amazing though, too, with everything you grew up through and all the challenges you're going to have is that you, you didn't, you didn't let it stop you. You didn't let it slow you down. Where did that drive come from to say, like you, you made that decision, like in third grade, I'm not going to be dumb anymore. Nobody's going to say that about me. Right. Where did that drive come from to say, no matter what they throw in front of me, I'm going to overcome it. I don't know, actually. 
<laughs> um, personally, I think your mom had a lot of influence on you because, you know, look, look what she went through and she persevered right on through at hardships no matter what came her way. She stuck in there. Yeah, that, that's true. And my grandmother, my grandmother was always, you know, about, she was the one that would tell me you can do anything. You can do anything. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do something. And it kind of made me that person that if you tell me I can't do something, okay, well, then I'm going to have to show you that I can. <laughs> and that's, that's where parents use reverse. I bet you can't clean up your room. I bet you do a crappy job of cleaning up your room. Let me show you. And then after you get done, you go, damn it. <laughs> they got me again. again. Yeah. Yeah. So let's yep. get, let's get back to you, Gina. Row, 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 Gina. We got several names for you. All right. So Gina, for you. So, um, when you graduated college, was CPS already in the cards or was that, how did you get into okay, CPS? So, so let me tell college? you how I ended up, because my desire was to immediately go into law enforcement, to be a police officer. Um, I said, I have a degree, so I ultimately wanted to go federal. Um, why? But why did I want to go federal? No, I asked first. <laughs> you can because slap I, have, because I have a degree. And I want to be in the criminal justice arena. And to me, it makes no sense for you to have a degree and be at the, the local level. You should utilize that degree and go as high as you can go in federal law enforcement. So you only want people is- without degrees protecting you in your city. No, that is not true. <laughs> that is not true. I'm just saying, you know. I It opened so- up doors. Having the degree opened up doors for you beyond Correct. the local level. Correct. Correct. But because... I, um, when I, nobody told me about finances or how to manage my finances. And when you know, you guys may know when you go to college, what do they do? They send you all these credit card applications and you get approved for the credit cards. So I probably left the university with seven, eight, nine, ten, I don't know, a bunch of credit cards with like a $500 minimum, all of them. And they were all maxed out. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, you bring up wait, a wait, wait, hold on. Hold on. Let me finish. <laughs> hold on. So, see, look at that. Hold on. You can already see the police officer coming out in her. So I had that, and I'm trying to get a job in law enforcement. I originally, my first police department I applied for was the Houston Police Department because it's right there outside of Beaumont. And I was dating a guy at that time that I wanted to stay in Houston because that's where he was. Um, so I applied to Houston Police Department, and they Nice sent me a nice little letter saying, uh, no, thanks, but no thanks. Your credit sucks <laughs> and you could potentially be susceptible to bribes. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Even though I have all these credit card debt, I'm not behind. I'm paying my bills. What part of that do they think I'm going to be susceptible to bribes? But I, I got it. I understood it. So I was like, OK. So because I was had that slant, remember I told you about the student affairs side because my dean got me into that and I started like looking into that area. I got us my first job out of college was at Paul Quinn, um, Paul Quinn College. Paul Quinn, I can't remember if it was a junior college or a college anyway, where I was their dorm um, supervisor. So I graduate and I become the supervisor over the dorm at that college. As I'm doing that, um, they have a career fair in the in the student center one day, and I was already put, had my resume prepared because I was like, I'm doing this, but I really want to get into law enforcement. And so I was going through the student center, and I see the Child Protective Services was there um, with their booth. So I approached them, and I said, so what are you – because in my mind, Child Protective Services, you still have to do investigations. You It's in that arena, right? And so I go up to the recruiter. This is how – 
cocky and crazy I was. I go up to him, I said, so are you here to really hire somebody or are you just here for show? (laughs) (laughs) And he says, no, we're really hiring. And I was like, for real? And I started telling him about myself and my background. He was like, you have a resume? I says, yes. He says, give me your resume and we'll get back with you. So I went back to my room, came back with my, um, my resume and gave it to him. And a did week you already later, have a resume or did you yeah. have to create one? No, okay. I had it all. Cause I'm looking for jobs. I'm even though I'm doing this for now, I'm looking actively looking for something in my field to utilize the degree that I just paid all this money to get. <laughs> so, and so get a job I, to pay off your credit card debt and to pay off my credit card debt. Cause I was working at the, the school and selling Mary Kay to pay, to make sure I, I didn't no get behind. Kidding. You do yeah, what you gotta let do. me tell you, I was a Mary Kay selling fool. <laughs> and the the way I'm going to come back to the child protective service. So I, how I got involved in Mary Kay. So I was printing off my, I was at the Kinko's printing off my, my resume. And I left one on the facts on the copier and the lay a Mary Kay representative later who happened to be like a, a big time regional director or whatever. I remember the lady, cause when she was in there, I was like, oh, she looks so elegant. You know, she just like this big, tall, blonde haired lady with a pink suit on. I mean, she just looked like, she had it going on and she had a pink car outside. So she pulls my resume and calls me and she said, are you looking for work? I said, yeah, I've just, just graduated from college. I'm talking literally talking to a stranger over the phone. She says, well, we're going to be having a Mary Kay meeting. Would you like to come? I was like, she seemed nice on the phone. I think about this now. I was like, girl, you could have ended up in a sex trafficking or something. She could have kidnapped you. But, but she said, if you're interested, I can come pick you up and I'll take you to the meeting. So I agree to it. She comes to pick me up, takes me to this meeting, and I immediately buy my my starter kit that night. On a credit card? Yes, on a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> you a, were trying I'm, to get out I'm, of debt. Now you're in bit much more debt. It was only $250 for the starter kit. Oh, so that, it was only. Only. Yeah, wow. but that's an investment. I had to invest in myself, uh, right? See, she's spouting. So that's the whole thing. Hey, look, it's <laughs> like somebody said one time, look, you're already $10,000 in debt. What's another $250? You know? Listen, yeah. so I I literally started when I, in between, like when I wasn't interviewing or working at the university, I would literally put my makeup on, walk around in the mall, and indelibly somebody would ask me, your makeup is so beautiful. What kind of makeup are you wearing? And I would say, Mary Kay, has anybody ever given you a complimentary facial? And I would book people from the mall. Cause I'm like, who, who at the mall in the daytime? Stay home moms. And they have friends that are stay home moms and let's get them glammed up. And that's how I did. And I literally paid all my bills until I got the job at child protective service. We only had to work one job. Wow. Yeah. Did you get the so, pink Cadillac? No, I didn't. I probably would if I would have stayed in it, but I just needed to maintain so that I didn't have bad credit for real, for real. You know, I was just thinking when you're saying here, you went and got in this car with a strange lady, uh-huh. you already knew how to, how a brick to the face feels. So, you know, she just kidnapped you. Just take a brick and take <laughs> that, her out, right? Yes. Lord have mercy. <laughs> but no, I didn't. T- I, fa- I passed out when I got hit by the brick. I wasn't still standing. I was like knocked out. Cold. Yeah, but you knew what the damage it could do. If she's trying yeah. to kidnap you, just take her right out. Well, let me give you my quick Mary Kay story, and it's not about me, but it's about – let me tell you what uh, – you hit upon something. When I was a detective, our investigation secretary and kind of crime scene tech, her name was Mary Townsend at the time. She ended up taking a big leap. I mean, you didn't make much money back back in my day. You know, you, you didn't make much money. And uh, she wasn't making much money, but she wanted more. Well, let me tell you, fast forward is – not only is she like one of the top Mary Kay people, I think, in the Midwest or, you know, 
in the whole area. She's got a team of like 2,000 or whatever. She bought a house that used to belong to one of the richest doctors in town. Yes. And she's got the pink Cadillac and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so for Christmas, you know, on a regular basis, I ordered my wife the 12 days of Mary Kay. Yes, love it. (laughs) But but I was, that's what I was talking to her about is how do you find people? And it's just more like she'll be at the gas station. She'll be talking to people. And either that or say, hey, you know, you know, chat the way she, and it's like, but let me tell you, that is so, I think for you, that was a great set of skills, right? Because it's sales. Mm -hmm. It's going to serve you well later. It's talking to people. It's understanding what they need, you know, versus what they want, Yes, you know, and it's being able to close the deal, right? Yes. And it becomes, I use it from my undercover when I actually come on the job. <laughs> there you go. What undercover you put on your makeup? They go, she can't be a cop. No, I, I, stand around, I stand around in people's neighborhoods because I'm either a real estate agent or a Mary Kay rep. <laughs> there you go. And just for you folks, we're not videoing this, but if we did, you would see she has the looks of a model. And I'm not kidding. No, it, it's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the brilliant cheekbones, the great smile. You know, she's here. She's covering her face. <laughs> hey, I'm just going to take a screenshot and show everybody. No. Hang on. <laughs> they can go. They can go. I don't have on, makeup uh, on today. I, this bare face. No, don't do that. No, but 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 you could but you could see that though. I mean, you you see the you see the um, who's the celebrity you most resemble? I don't know. People tell me Yolanda Adams, the singer. She's a gospel singer, Yolanda Adams. But I don't know. Every time I go somewhere, somebody tells me I look like somebody. I'm like. Okay. <laughs> you look like you look like the uh, Regina Patterson King, don't you? <laughs> I don't you know, know her as Roro. You know when, Ro- when Morgan Ro- started Ro- to say he, yeah. when Morgan started to say this story about his his uh, Mary Kay story, I thought I don't think I know an, another man in the world that has a Mary Kay story. I was kind of wondering where this was going to go. <laughs> where he was going to go with it? <laughs> you have great hair and skin like I do at my yeah, age. Oh, he's what's glowing. your secret? Oh, oh, yeah. He's glowing. He's using that time wise. <laughs> Here we go with the sales pitch again. Okay, she has back lost. To our okay. re- back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So, so you're so doing the Morgan's going to be getting the twelve days of Mary Kay, right? Yes, exactly. and they got it from it. She tried to sell me on it. I'm like, nah. They revoked my man card. I don't. Think so. So 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 I'm I'm basically that's what I did until I like I say I submit my I give my resume to the guy that's at the booth for child protective services and within a week they call me um, they do everything and probably less than a it was less than a month I know I was in my class my academy class for the for child protective services. Wow, what uh, was going to be your role? I was an intake investigator, so I'm the one that receive the calls when they immediately happen. So I'm the first person on the scene. And what kind of authority in the state of Texas or the Republic of Texas did did you have as an intake? Any law enforcement powers or just? That's a scary thing. No, I I did not realize. I knew I wasn't going to be carrying a gun because they didn't, that was no, were part of the, the um, training process, but I didn't realize how hard it would be. For example, parts of Texas at the time, don't even have cell phone service. So I would literally be going out to, to locations that received um, information about children being abused. And I'm going to places, no cell phone service. I've determined I need to remove the child from the to location and parents and neighbors are saying, you ain't taking this child nowhere. And you've got, they're not going to let you use their phone to call for it either. Are they? No. And I end up, we end up, I ended up buying a phone but it was funny. You have to pay for the phone up front and they reimburse you just like your gas. 
You pay mm. for all that up front, and they and let me guess, you. you put it on a credit card again. <sighs> well, because child social workers don't make a lot of money, and and people at child protective services don't. I was actually bringing home twelve hundred dollars a month working for for CPS in Texas. Was that before or after taxes? That's after taxes. That's literally what I was bringing home. Oh man! So at the end of the month, it would get kind of tight. But what I I, I, I did the job, and like I say, I remember this this instance where I was at a school, and it was determined that I have to I have to remove the the, the child and bring him to the office. Our office was in downtown, over on, on the Love Field in um, Avenue in in Dallas, and I was somewhere in South Dallas, and I had to take this this kid, and literally the, the school called, so the father shows up, who's the perpetrator of the abuse of this kid. And literally the, the principals are literally giving me directions on how to get out of the school because the father's in the school and he's, has, he's aware I'm there. And so they're like, go to the left, go to the right. And we have teachers in the hallway, like guiding me as he's going different parts of the school. So it was like back in the day when people could just walk in schools randomly. So I'm literally with this kid trying to escape the school so that the father doesn't like jack me up because he's like this six foot something guy that could just sling me whatever and when we needed police backup we have to call 911 and wait for them to come so i learned negotiation skills i've had scenes where i was in the projects and people literally gathered around me and i literally tell the people tell the parents i said okay this is what we'll do i'll take you guys with me to the office I put strangers in my car with their kid and bring them to the office. And I'm like, please don't let them choke me from the backseat. Cause I didn't know, you know, you don't put the bad guys in the backseat. You don't put them behind you then. But I literally have them in my car driving them to the office um, to, to interview them further. Yeah. So like, I had to be thinking fast on my feet and I was like, I need a gun. <laughs> this is not working. This is not well, working. In Texas, everybody has a gun. Well, I didn't have a gun. I didn't have a gun. And we were not allowed to carry guns as CPS workers. And so I just really, I was like, I want to be doing this because I like the investigation. And I was really good at getting perpetrators to admit to their wrongdoings. And um, and then having to refer it to the law enforcement once they admit uh, to see if they're, you know, there's any char- criminal charges that are going to be brought against them. But I just really, the law enforcement was just still burning in me. And so I, um, I, I went and applied for DEA and I started the process with them. And why'd you pick DEA and not FBI or ATF? Let me just tell you, let me be transparent. I applied for DEA and FBI. I never wanted to be ATF because I was like, I I really wasn't a big fan. Wait a minute. First of all, wait a minute, back up. First, I went to the do- no, no, I went to Fed first. That's because okay. So I went to DEA. I applied for DEA and I applied for FBI. When I went to FBI, I applied, did the first round, did my my testing because they give you this test that's like a college exam test. It's like a SAT all over again. Um, but I passed it. But then they come back and tell me when they then after I pass that the exam, they come back and tell me, they say, we see you want to come into FBI under the law enforcement umbrella, yet you don't have law enforcement experience. And I'm thinking, okay, 
well, you knew what I had when you gave me the test. I only had child protective services and the investigations from, from that standpoint. So what changed from when you gave me the initial, um, um, application to fill out and when you allowed me to take the test, which I passed till now, and you're telling me, um, why don't you go get two, two, three years of law enforcement experience, go join a local police department. I said, okay. So I'm waiting for DEA and I'm waiting for FBI. So I go and join, apply for Dallas PD. And I came in at a very good time because they were actually doing like mobile applicant hiring where they were trying to get me in, like do everything one on during one weekend. And I was like, I can't do that. I'm still working at the school. So I, I, I can't like just break away. So, anyway, so you're working at the school and CPS at the same time. Oh, no, sorry. I'm at Child Protective Services now. So I'm working Child Protective Services. I'm at Child Protective Services. I'm working Child Protective Services. Uh, sorry about that confusion. <laughs> so I'm working at Child Protective Services now. And so I said, because I at least want to give them a month's notice if I'm going to leave. And so they, they still take me to the process on my time. And I get hired on. I actually got hired before I got an academy class because they had me working in the quartermasters because they... I guess really liked my resume. <laughs> so I started there and then I had my, went to my academy class and it was off and running. I mean, how I long was your academy? It. The academy was, oh my gosh, it's been so long now. I think it was like two months, but we didn't stay on, on campus. We went home every night and had to be back at the, the campus. I want to say it was like two months or something like that. Two or three months maybe. Um, but I was already in shit, which was funny. So to be a Dallas police officer, I had to gain weight. <laughs> I, oh, well, I, I got one more question to ask you before you okay. do that. Was was there a height requirement? That, yes, a height and weight requirement. Yes. How tall are you? I am five seven. Okay, you you looked at we a couple of our previous guests uh -huh. that we talked to. The minimum height requirement was five four. One of them, Steve, Michelle Linhart. Michelle Linhart, when she got on. Uh, Baltimore PD, she had to poof her hair an extra half an inch to meet the 5'4 requirement. Yep. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. For me, I needed the weight because I only weighed 109 pounds at 5'7. So you could just imagine how I looked. People always tried to feed me, but I had to gain. <laughs> I had to be for 5'7, I had it to be 118 pounds minimum. Wow. So I, yeah. So I had to like get me a trainer. I was like, amino acids, um, proteins. I was eating egg whites and all kind of gross stuff and working out seven days a week, pumping iron because I needed to build muscle mass. And if I tell you my body looks so good, I've never looked so good ever again. <laughs> but I, they, they lady whipped me into shape and I was able to do the, make the, the, the weight requirement. She's the female version of Rocky. I like it. <laughs> Listen, my arms was like, cut, cut, cut. Look at the guns. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Yes. I used to just take pictures of my arms. Look at these abs. Look. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have any of that anymore, but. Oh, you were doing selfies back before selfies were cool. Polaroids. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard to hold a Polaroid camera out there and take a selfie. Let me tell you. <laughs> That's Good why I was stuff. just taking a picture of the gut to the arm. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the guns over here. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, 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 so I went to Dallas PD and I was there, wait, still going through the process with both of those um, departments. And, um, and when DEA, DEA was the first one to call. 
And I was like, okay, I'm out. But how long were you at Dallas PD? I was at Dallas PD for two and a half years. And so you got out of quartermasters, you went through the academy, you had to hit the street, right? Yep. Oh, I so loved it. So it Steve, was- what was the other guy from DEA worked for Dallas PD? Uh, was it Gary Har- Edgington? Har- Guy Hargraves, wasn't it? Guy Hargraves, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Guy Hargraves started on Dallas PD, went to the CIA, I think it was, did uh, polygraphs, ended up at DA. However, as we were talking to Guy, um, he had a very unique story on his first day of work at Dallas PD. Your first day of work when you were on your own, anything- Okay, off of training? You mean off of training? Yeah, off training. You're no FTO. You're out there on your own. Anything exciting happen on your first day? Not my first day. Uh-oh. Guy's than, first day was he had a than, naked guy high on PCP or meth climb in his squad car and fight him. Well, <laughs> I, I I did not on my first day, but I did see how meth can make you like Superman because we had a call one night at a um 7-Eleven and the guy was so high on meth, he basically ran through the plate glass window <laughs> at a 7-Eleven. And we had about probably about seven officers trying to restrain him. Wow. Yeah. He was and he, it was like he was like slanging people like rag dolls. And he wasn't that big, but that drug, oh my gosh. Yeah. Rule number one him. on game of crimes, kids, don't do math. Don't That's do our math. number one rule. Yeah, don't do math, because it, it was crazy. You know, you think about it, a plate glass window, it's not like television. That takes some force to break it out takes with some, the body. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Speaking yes. of that, uh, there is a uh, Darwin Award that was awarded to a guy. I think it was a lawyer who was working in you, – you'll find this out there. He was working in a skyscraper type of thing, and he kept telling people these windows are safe, so he would run and hit the windows and bounce off of them. So he did it one day. The window didn't break. He had just hit it so many times it loosened the, the molding and everything around <laughs> uh-huh. it. He went out with the window. What a moron. Wow. And I, I still think that the 7-Eleven, it wasn't a plate glass window. I think it was a normal window because, yeah, I think when plate glass, it kind of – because it like, has like a film on it, doesn't it? But this guy – because he was all bloody, and these cops were like – Oh, my gosh. The plate glass was, has some kind of hardening. Um, I don't know if yeah. it's material or the way they produce it. I think they're it, thicker. So I think it was yeah, like hard. a bootleg glass. <laughs> it wasn't Still plated. Though. But he, wow. he he ran and it was a mess. But I have Dallas PD, I have all kind of funny stories. Well, let's hear from, one. Well, first of all, because I'm a rookie and I'm an overachiever, right? So I'm I'm working deep nights. This is my first assignment when I'm off of training. I'm deep nights. What, what does like, that mean, deep nights? Oh, I mean, 11, to, um, 11 at night to 7 in the morning, deep okay. nights. And <laughs> I'm 5, 5, 527. That was my call. I was at Northwest Station, 527 traffic. I'm marking out on traffic. I'm in a beat that has like nightclubs and there's prostitution and I got all kind of stuff going on. So I'm just like really busy. And I they get a call on the phone. It's like, Regina, meet us over here at this location. So I go over and the other cops meet me there. It's like, excuse us. Can you get off the radio so we can sleep? I'm like, what? I'm like, we're trying to work and save the world. You guys are sleeping. Like what kind of police station is this? (laughs) But the old heads, I was interrupting their sleep. So I was like, oh, okay. Sorry about that. Let me, a certain time I just come off the radio and just let it be quiet. (laughs) Let it be quiet. Hey, let's, let's rewind just for a second, because I know we're going to talk about this with DEA. Did you have any challenges because of your skin color when you were going through the Dallas Academy? Did you run into any issues? That is a good question. So I, my Academy class was like so tight. 
so tight. We were like kids on the playground. We were not recognizing color, right? Mm -hmm. Until we had our ethics and diversity course, which happened pretty close to graduation. And what year are we talking about now? This is 1997. Okay. So in this class, the people from HR come in and they kind of tell us about our class. They start to say, okay, if you guys look around, you see that we have five black males, five white males, five Hispanic males, and then they may have some Chinese that they can get. And the same with the women. Okay, so now we have classmates that are looking at us like, oh, so you guys are only here because you're a female or you're a minority or blah, blah, blah. When we didn't have that issue before, we were all in the same struggle. We were all trying to achieve the same thing of becoming Dallas police officers. But we had one of my classmates who I think the world of him, he basically, you could tell that this hurt him because his parents are his, his, um, his father is white. His mom is Hispanic. So he applied for Dallas police department the first time as a white male and got denied. Nothing changed on his resume other than the fact the second time he applies as a Hispanic male and gets it. So imagine that idea being put on a class where now you're saying you're discriminating against white males because you're trying to, quote unquote, make this class diverse. That is just as bad as the other way of not including someone because you're still not including someone. And having five black females or five black males or five white, that doesn't necessarily equate the class to be diverse either. Because you could get five males that all came from the same background. How's that diversity? Because <laughs> we're all going to have the same viewpoint. So again, just because there's a, the color on the outside, that again does not equate to equality. And it just caused a lot of problem in our class for the last couple of weeks. Well, that's interesting. What you were saying is you had no issue until somebody come in and told you there was an issue. That that was how they, they made, they put our class together. What a shame. Intentionally, that's how they put the class together. What was the purpose of it? I mean, you, you because, think- because they were, they were saying we're, we have a diversity. We're living up to the, um, I'm trying yeah, to they're treating it just though as a checkbox. Like, okay, we're diverse. Yes, we exactly. did this as opposed to, have we hired qualified? I mean, look, you you always want your police force to reflect your community. Um, but it's, at some point though, you know, it's the issue of standards. I look at you and I go, nobody in their right mind would not hire you. When you look at your work ethic, you look at your grades, you look at what you've overcome, you look at your reputation, your your uh, character. They'd be a fool not to hire you, but they sh- they shouldn't be hiring you just because you're black. They should be hiring you because you're qualified. Exactly. And that's what I and that's what I'm saying because it demeans the person. Because like I say, now I have classmates looking at me, and I was probably one of I think there were two other people that had degrees, college degrees in the class because all you had to have was an associate um, to be a Dallas police officer. And so you're looking at me and you're saying, oh, well, they're here because she's a black female. And I'm thinking, dude, I'm overqualified to be here. But it demeans when you do that. It not only demeans or diminishes the person that is qualified or overqualified to hold a position because people are like, oh, they're just here because it's a a checkbox. That's not fair. It's not fair either way. And and it's not fair to your career because now it starts planting a seed of doubt in your mind. You go, am I really here because I'm qualified or I'm here because somebody needed to meet a recruiting goal? Mm -hmm. I always knew I was there because I was qualified, but you're absolutely right. Right. 
And, and what's to be gained by HR coming in and telling you guys that? You, in law enforcement culture, we're all brothers Why? and sisters. It Thank doesn't you. matter. I just want to know, when we hit that door or we yep. hit something hits the fan, are you going to have my back? Absolutely. That's all Absolutely. I want to know. And I got to tell you, there were a couple times where I had guys that looked like me that when we went to take somebody down, I remember at a park one night, I'm a detective, you know, we're, we're out just, you know, I'm cruising, backing up guys. I'm just trying to get involved in case to see if there's something good. And we were, were, they stop and frisk a guy and he's got a gun. He's going for it. I yelled, gun, gun, gun. And so two of us are hopping and me and the patrol officer, but who's supposed to be my partner who looks like me is in the background, just kind of standing there going, oh, should I get involved or not? And I look at him and said, fucking get in the fight. Yeah. You know? like, but I'll tell you, but you know who got in the fight? A little girl, Hispanic girl, about half his size. When we're just kind of a similar thing, take one of those guys, you know, gives you the thousand yard stairs. You hit him with your baton and it's like, it doesn't even phase him. It's like, oh shit, the fight Here is on. <laughs> and let me tell you what, she got in there and it's like a pit bull, you know, just a small pit bull, but still a pit bull. And she mm-hmm. was tearing shit up. I'm telling you, but you know, it, it's about your heart. It's about your character. It's not about your skin. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because when we put on that uniform and that badge, we're all one. Except can, FBI. We don't. We, we put FBI in a different category. <laughs> that is our <laughs> like, We have to do uh-oh. one FBI joke per episode. Well, we say that we're all one. They're like, well, three quarters, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's the FBI and then everybody else. That's their that, view of the rest of the world, right? That's, that's the way they look at it, yeah. Well, so how did you guys – so how how did it affect then graduation and working with those folks? Did you guys get over it or was that something that kind of simmered, like you said, for the last couple of weeks? It, it kind of simmered for the last couple of weeks and then we all went off to our own stations. Um, yeah. Did did Now, did anything happen to you after you got on the job? Were you treated – you know, uh, I mean, here's the question because this is for me from a perspective – um, we never grew up, you know, when I grew up, my parents were divorced early. My dad was a World War II and a Vietnam vet. Drinking problem, came home from the war. It was bad. They got divorced, right? My mom, same thing, working two jobs, three jobs. You know, we didn't, we were poor. We didn't know we were poor, but you know, but you know that way. And so, but I, so I've looked at it that way. I only have my view, but you know, being around the world, but from your view, when's the first time you knew that you were being discriminated against? When it went, because you talked about the first time somebody used an N word, you had to go home and say, Mom, what does that mean? When's the first time you really knew because of your skin, because of the way you looked, somebody was taking a negative action against you? Well, that would go, it would go back to, to childhood. Um, and the, 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 the kid that used the N word on, um, to me. And when I was, <clears throat> when I was in high, when I was a senior in high school, I played volleyball. And I got an offer to come to a university. I'm not going to say it on the air, but I got invited to come to a university um, and to, to try out for their volleyball team. And it was so funny. This school is in this little town that I never really knew anything about. But my coach says they want to see you. So would you think your mom will take you out there for the, for the tryouts? And I was like, asked her. And she was like, yeah. So we go there. And we walk into this convenience store and it was like, we just walked into the wrong area. If I tell you, I can't explain it other than I thought we were not going to make it out of there <laughs> because they, they gave us looks like, how dare you walk in our store? Why are you here? You must not know where, are you lost? <laughs> you know? And I was like, okay. My mom was like, let's go. 
So we didn't even buy anything. We just left out of the little store, got in the car and went further down, went to the university. And at the university, no one ever said anything, but I was like, if this is the surrounding town that this school is in, and I saw the the kids that they brought in to, 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 um, for the, um, I just lost my train of thought for the, for the tryouts, for the tryouts. Most of them were minorities. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know if I would want to live here because you're going to have to live on campus and, and interact with the people of the town. And I was like, and I really bombed the the tryouts because I was focused on the fact that it was clear that those people did not want us to be here. <laughs> so it would not have been a fun couple years or four it would not years. Have been at a, school. I don't think yeah. so. I don't think so. But but even speaking on that, when I was at Lamar University, I don't know if you remember the if you guys remember the Viter the Viter incident where they um they basically beat a man. Excuse well actually yeah they they. Inviter. So when I went to Lamar University, they have um, freshman orientation and a part of the orientation is specifically for minority students. So we stay back and they proceed to tell us there's a little town called Viter and there's Jasper. These places you guys don't go. If you are caught there at nighttime, you could be in trouble because the Ku Klux Klan is alive and well in this area. And this is 1990 that we're being told this. And they said, don't stop there for gas. Don't do anything with that, that area. I was like, is this really happening? And I'm like looking around to my future classmates. Cause I don't know anyone at the university at this point. I'm like, this is crazy. So they're like wanting us to stay away from this area because we're minorities. And so in Jasper, <laughs> a um a a, a um, HUD guy goes in there because he's surveying the area because they're thinking about putting a project in this area. HUD? I mean HUD. HUD Housing uh, yeah. and Urban Development. Okay. Correct. And he's basically killed. They drag him and kill him. And oh my God. Was he yeah, black? He was black. And we end up having like sit-ins. We're having all kinds of stuff at the school. Oprah actually comes to Beaumont. Um, that was the first time I was involved in a sit-in. And it was so weird because I had friends that were from Vider, from Jasper, and they were like, it's not us. It's our grandparents, the older people that still believe that. But because they were never exposed to anybody other than white people, that they don't know that there are good people out there. You know, they were just under that mindset that, white is white and you don't associate with us. You don't come in our area. You don't. Yeah. So that was, that was my first time of like protesting, you know, that, but my, my white friend sat right along with me outside of our student center. We were having our protests for that. Wrong wrong is wrong. Right is right. But it's about, it's about knowing though, because even my, my friends, my white friends, (laughs) and it's even weird when you say my white friends, but that's the only way I can to explain it so that it's understood. But they would tell me stuff like, Gina, you don't act like most black people. I'm like, well, what do is, what is you think most black people act like? Because I act like everybody that's black in my life. But it's like not knowing. Just like me, if I hadn't been exposed to people that were not black when I was a kid, I wouldn't know how to interact with white kids. 
You know, it's like you have to be exposed to be able to understand people and just understand that at the end of the day, we all, like you say, bleed red. We're all the same. And again, it comes back to what is the character? What is your heart? You know, the old saying is a fish doesn't know it's in water. Sometimes you don't know, you you know. Exactly. Fish is a fish, right? It doesn't know it's in water. Um, well, um, you know, the thing is, we've kind of, we spent a lot of time on this bit, but I think it's good because this, you know, everything that has formed, all of these experiences start forming, you know, as you get into the federal government, um, like, you know, even on Dallas PD, before we leave Dallas PD, let's kind of close off with a couple stories, you know, like one, like what's one of the funniest things, but what was one of the most either, uh, dangerous situations or heartbreaking situations you dealt with at Dallas PD? Well, I mean, did you have a naked guy on meth hop through your squad car? Let's get that one out of the way first. No, we didn't, we didn't have that, but I'll tell and this probably won't be funny, but this is how law enforcement people get so cynical. So there was an accident. <laughs> I'm laughing right now. So there was a car accident, right? Um, and the accident happened on a freeway, but the car went off into like a neighborhood. The guy, would, the driver was completely decapitated, decapitated, right? So head gone. We get down to the bottom of the, the scene where the, the body in the car is all at and the head. As we go, the crime scene gets there. And as we go to try to rope off stuff, a dog comes along and takes <laughs> the head. Oh, jeez. So we're literally in the street, like trying to get the dog so we can get the head back from the dog who has it oh, <laughs> in his mouth. Oh. I'm like, you can't make this stuff up. But You're not if, if, if people had video back in the day, that would have been, a, I mean, it's gruesome, but mm -hmm. just to see. This is the, the stuff you deal with. Yeah. yeah I tell you, one of the most, one of the most insensitive moments, it even, it made me cringe so bad. I was a state trooper. We got called out to work a wreck in a county. I won't mention the county, but the sheriff's out there. It was a bad wreck. Um, not quite decapitation, but guy lost part of his arm. It's laying there. And so you're having to collect body parts, you know, you identify and then you collect. And so he picks it up and he goes, look, and we pick it up. It's a, it's part of an arm right above the elbow. And it's got a watch on. He says, it's a Timex. It took a licking and kept on ticking. Oh. <laughs> oh. That, that's, that's not uh, nice. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's like, we look at it. It's like, I get the morbid sense of humor, but man, mm -hmm. here's my thing is you don't know who's around. Exactly. Right? You know, you don't know what's going to be. And this is even before the days of social media, but that was so cringe because you look, you're cringeworthy. And it's like, if you're going to say that one thing, don't say it in public. You want to say it in a coffee break, whatever, but it's just like, but yeah, to your point, there's yeah, some but people we, who we just- We get very, but all of us can get very cynical and you have to, you have to be aware of that because you just, you get, you exposed to so much stuff. It's like, okay. It's a defense mechanism that helps you cope with the things you have to see. Yeah. Cause so, um, so what's, is there a- And a funny, a, a funny st story. Um, so my first car chase- you're going to love this. So my first car chase was about a 15 mile an hour car chase. Hell, you could have just you get out, out of your car and run up and grab them. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I, because I, I was actually still on training at the time. And I told my, my. <laughs> Let me out. Let me out. I, I told my, my trainer. I no, said, you're telling him, look at me. I'm ripped. I'm buff. I can catch this guy. Look at my abs. Listen, I watch too much television. That's why I say, kids, don't believe everything you see on television. So I, I reached a turn over to my trainer because I'm in the passenger seat. And he, I said, just pull up close to the car and I can jump on the hood and stop the car because <laughs> we're going so slow. And he was like, Regina, just pay attention. Watch what they're going to do. And I was like, 
come on, this is crazy. Hit them or something, like bump them off the road. Let's get this over with. They were literally driving 15 miles an hour, but they were driving 15 miles an hour because they were looking for a place to jump and run. And so he said, there they go, get them. And I was like, oh, okay. And then we got them for got chase. It. Now I got it. So you but had, I so was you, so annoyed. Did you get them? Did you we get them? Get yeah, we did get them. But I was so annoyed because I was like, really? How long is this going to last that we're going to let these people drive around 15 miles an hour before we just they run out of gas or stop. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. I was like, just let, pull up. I can jump. And I was visualizing jumping on the hood and reaching through the window I'm and sorry, grabbing what, them. <laughs> which part of the academy dealt with hopping out of a moving patrol None. vehicle onto the hood of yeah, a suspect's exactly. vehicle? Do not uh, hear me well, say I watched Cagney and Lacey, Jump Street 21, <laughs> and they were doing all that type of stuff. Which one of, so let's, you were talking about Charlie's Angels, too. Which one of uh-huh. the angels would you have been? Oh, my gosh. Because uh, I got to tell you, every guy back in the day had a picture of Farrah Fawcett. You know, yeah, I, oh, I yeah. actually like. The, I can't remember her name though. The tall, um, the blonde, named Bergen, black haired lady. Because I thought she was the oh, smartest. Oh, Jacqueline uh, Smith or something. Yes. No, no, no. There was one taller than her. She was. What was her name? Merce, Merce doing the research on it right was, now. She wasn't the most beautiful one, but I thought she was the smartest. Yeah. I think huh. she's in the center in the picture of the Charlie's Angels. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And you know, I don't remember are, you, you think of stuff like that. You think of Knight Rider. You think of uh, uh, Hill Street Blues. So, what was yep. your favorite? Don't whatever you do. Don't tell me you don't tell me you got informed. Uh, any of your techniques came from watching Miami Vice. No. Uh. Uh-uh. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Almost every DEA agent we talked to at some point they go, "Yeah, Miami Vice is one of my favorite yeah, I, shows." I think that's a guy thing. No. Uh-uh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so, but so you applied. So, are you saying it took two and a half years for DEA to get their shit together and hire you? Is that, I mean, you were going through, the, you never got turned down by DEA, just FBI, no. right? And I, well, technically, yeah, you could say I was turned down, right? Because those, they basically told me, get some more experience. Oh, you were delayed. Yeah, go get some experience and come back. Because actually, this is the thing. So, when I, I got the first DEA called and my um, sergeant at the station, after I left, they called looking for me, FBI. And my sergeant told me, y'all lost her. She's already gone to DEA. So a year to the day, they actually called looking for me. That's what you said. But I was, al- okay. I was already gone. So, yep, that's good. So you've, you've struggled with all of this stuff. Now you got the call. DEA calls. DEA calls, and I'm driving in my car. And the recruiter calls me and says, Regina, we want to offer you a conditional hire. Um, the academy is, I think they gave me a, a, were giving me a, like a month to get ready to go to the academy. And I was like, hold on, let me pull over. Cause I'm about to like pass out. <laughs> I was so excited because it took so long to get hired because I was doing like parts at a time. They like, I'd go have my psychological and then I wouldn't hear anything for two months. And then I'd go do my poly and I, you know, so it was just like a long process it was so much so that I thought I was going to have to redo my PT, which was fine because I was literally doing the PT, actually doing the exam every Friday. So I knew whenever I got that call, if I got to go do the PT, I'm ready. So I'm ready to go. <laughs> ready right. to go. Who else waited two and a half years to get hired, Murph? Oh, I waited two years. I believe I actually got turned down by DEA because I used to have uh, bleeding ulcers. Oh. When I was much younger, but uh, and I went through a couple extra medical tests and got it. Got that waived when they show you know when the evidence showed there was no more ulcer problem. Yeah, but you know what Murph did, Gina? 
He got he what he was tired of waiting. He drove down to the recruiter's office in Washington D.C. and did a knock and talk. Yeah. <laughs> Are you serious? No, he's joking, right? <laughs> no, no. Look, I went. It was a it was a six hour drive to get there. Didn't just showed up, you know, cold turkey then on the front door. And Charlie West, I don't know if you ever knew Charlie. He was a recruiter back then, and uh, it just he just happened to be in the office, and he came out to the front, and he's like, "Do I have an appointment with you?" And I said, "No, sir. I'm just, you know." He said, you just drove all this way just to come and say what's going on with your application. And you know what? Within a couple of weeks, my application started moving through. And, and Charlie and I ended up being friends eventually. Yeah. I, Terry Wyatt was the recruiter out of Dallas when I got hired. And she was she was great. She was great. Because I have, I have, if I say this now, I was like, I'm going to be embarrassed. Because once I got on a job, I realized that they talk about people who do this. <laughs> so <laughs> when I came on the job, I was 27 years old. And my mom, who was not happy that I became a police officer, she was like mm-hmm. afraid of everything related to that. But she didn't really know what DEA was, um, which I realized, and I'll tell you the story later on. But she said, I don't know if I want you to do that either. And I was like, well, mom, uh, I'm going. They like, it's on, it's, it's happening. And she was like, was well, there someone I can talk to? <laughs> So I literally called Terry and I said, Terry, I know this is going to sound crazy because I'm 27 years old, but I have this mom who she needs, she needs to be comforted that I'm going to be like leaving to go to Quantico for this academy. And she said, bring her in. I'll talk to her for sure. Cause Terry was a, a agent. She had kids and she was doing it. Right. And so she let my mom come in and asked her questions. So I was like, this is so embarrassing. Look. <laughs> And, you, and you're, you're Dallas PD to start with. so And I'm Dallas PD to talk, which is so funny because, like I say, she didn't want me to be in law enforcement, but she finally decided to do a ride along once I got the offer from DEA and I was going to be leaving. So she said, okay, I'll do a ride along with you. So she starts out the night by saying, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to sit in the car and just watch. If I tell yeah. you by the end of the night, my mom was like out of the car. She's like marking out on the radio. I'm like, what happened to you? You're not going to do anything. And then she proceeds to tell me at the end of the night or in the morning, she says, you know what? I wanted to be a police officer when I was growing up. I was oh. like, are you kidding me? She was that? like, she was like, yeah, but I, I didn't, you know, think I would could do it. And then I started having kids and it just kind of went to the side. I was like, mom. And all this time you was like stressing me because I literally waited because a couple of years because my mom was kept telling me, I don't want you to be a police officer. I don't want you to be a police officer. Yeah. So, well, hell, it was more dangerous at CPS. No gun, no backup, no radio. And that's what I told her. That's what I told her. I'm out in no man's land and Calvary's not coming for about 45 minutes to an hour. And <laughs> yeah, so. You, you know who else? Yeah. Uh, you know who? Well, actually, you know who else's parent? Actually, it was the other way. We had a Derek Maltz. His dad took him out on operations when Derek was like, what, 11 or 12? Yeah. That's what? just seven and a half. Seven and a half calling. We need, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yep. I love it. Yep. Oh, man. That's a whole, That's they, just, uh, they just had a ceremony, I think, this past week where yep. they dedicated the gym in New York. Uh, yeah, I New saw York that. Yeah. I saw yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Derek was saying that. We said, you're going to get a workout in? He goes, you bet I am. So we're going to have to ask Derek to see if he got a workout in in his dad's gym. That is yeah. so awesome. It is. All right. So, but, but, but at the end of the night, now, was your mom ready to slap the cuffs on people? And uh... if I tell you, she was so, she was so pumped. 
She was so pumped. I like it. You got to be able to sleep when you get home because she was like all excited. And it happened to be one of the coldest nights. And we had some weird calls, you know, for homeless people needing to get put them in shelters and stuff so they could, you know, be out of the cold. And we just had all kind of stuff. And she was just like, this is kind of cool. I was like, mom. Now <laughs> but- and it opens, it really opens up their eyes to what goes on out there. And then people realize that, wait a minute, the cops didn't do anything to deserve that attitude, you know, and they see what really goes on out there. And she was like, you're, you're good at this. You're so calm with people. Because remember, I'm also like the kid that was with an attitude and would pop off. Yeah. But, you know, God brought me down and made me be, help me to be able to. God hit you upside the head with a brick. Brick. <laughs> <laughs> Why you have to say it like that? <laughs> but that's that's true. Look, because that did bring me way down. It was like uh, the Lord works yep. in mysterious ways, as they say. Because if does. you beat up people too many times, it was like, wait a minute, I'm gonna bring us a weapon this time. <laughs> We're just gonna solve this problem once and for all. Whack. Okay. So, um, so what was it like? You know, you kind of said you've always wanted to go ahead. Now you've got the job. Now you know you're going to the academy. Now you've been working out every Friday to do this. Um, so let's well, talk not- about. Well, let me also, not only was I working out every Friday, I knew from going to the Dallas Police Department that I didn't touch a gun until I became a police officer. I had no experience with guns whatsoever. And I knew the only thing that could hurt me at the academy if I didn't practice and learn how to do it was qualifications. And so I had an individual whose name is on DEA's possible club list, which is a board that top shooters' names go on. And I had that person training me and I had an agent for ATF who was taking me out and helping me with the shooting. So I was shooting like tight groups. So I went to that academy, like confident, nothing can stop me. Yeah. That's the way and, you go. Yeah. Hey, so the other thing too is uh, there, that's a term of art in law enforcement. We talk about the possible group. So let's talk about that. You know, I don't know. Maybe that's not your area of expertise or Steve. I don't know. If, so tell people what it says when he says they're part of the possible group. What does that mean? Who, me or Regina? Either one of you. I don't know if I don't Go know ahead, who Steve. Because I think, are you on the board? <laughs> I'm on the board. Yes. <laughs> so you, we had back then. It was the Practical Police Combat Corps PPC. Yeah, PPC. You know, yeah, fifty yards, twenty-five yards, 15, 15 and seven. I think it was, or ten and seven. It's a fifty-round course. You had to use uh, whatever when you're kneeling behind a barricade. You had to use the barricade, and they would watch you. And if any part of your body came out too far from the barricade that would, in real life, would expose you to being shot, you'd fail. So um, to make the possible club, you have to meet all those criteria and you have to have a perfect score of having all 50 rounds inside the 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 B-27 targets. So, and and my story is when I went through the the academy, you know, we had the the bar there at the FBI academy is, is the academy I went to. And uh, I had stayed sober the entire class the whole time I'd been there. And then one night, the guys, I went down with the guys to get a cold beer, and I came up just sloshed. And we had we had to be at, on the range at 8 a.m. And I'm sitting there, and I got a hangover. that I'm just ready to puke and die. And, and the instructors come over and go, like, all right, Murph, come try for the possible club. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> so I, I did not make it that day. I missed it by one round. But then later, I became a firearms instructor and went through the course and got my name on the board. So it's... If you're not, it's it's only I think important to the people who make it. You know, you, they give you those. No, it's it's a big that. deal. It's pretty cool because I I admire people that can shoot a perfect score. <laughs> yeah, it was it was different. Actually, believe it or not, on the police department in Garden City, um, there, Gina, one of the guys he ended up going to um, 
uh, Colorado, actually Aurora. He was one of the detectives that worked the Aurora shooting uh, with it when that idiot went down there. Um, he actually shot, uh, he went through the FBI training, uh, the sniper training. He shot a possible, what the only local officer, I think at the time to ever shoot a possible on the FBI sniper course. I mean, so, I mean, it, what it is, it's a reflection of skill technique, but it's also training. I mean, cause you were put to do, to get to there, you were putting a lot of rounds, right? Every week. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, we had, I think they say when you graduate the DEA Academy back at that time, which was, I think we were 13 weeks we went through that you had shot a, a minimum of 10,000 rounds by the time you graduated the DE Academy. So where'd you go? Where was your academy at? Quantico. I was actually, <clears throat> I was actually, our class, 134, was the first class to actually be in the new building where DE had their own building. We were not in the FBI Academy. So I oh, actually started cool. there and I actually arrived before they were ready for me. <laughs> I was so excited because I had drove you down. you overachiever? I'm prepared. I'm early. <laughs> Listen, I drove down from Texas. I drove my car down with all my stuff in the back. You mean and you I drove up from Texas? Oh, that's right. I drove up from Texas. <laughs> if you drive Thank down you. from Texas, you're North at the Mexican South. Academy. Yeah, not <laughs> Yes, I drove up from Texas. You're correct. And um, I, I, so I got in a, a day early and spent a night at a hotel. And so I really wasn't sure about what time I was supposed to be there. I just got up in the morning and I was there probably about nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and that wasn't the time for me to be there because they were not even set up yet. And they're looking at me and I go in, I'm like, I'm here for class 134. And I'm like all happy go looking. They're like, uh, we're not ready yet. So I didn't get the part of them pulling up my car stuff out, my stuff and putting in a tires up in my room, which they, they, how they induct the new bees. They'll Say take all again? their... How do they do that? What do they do? They, they induct the newbies by taking all of the, their stuff. Well, I don't know if they still do this now, but literally, if you have like a spare tire, you have your 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 car wrench and your suitcases, everything, they take all of that out of the car and take it to your room, which that stuff you're going to have to put back in your car because that wasn't meant to come out. But that's how they like, or they'll open the door and say, give me some push-ups and start giving you push-ups when you're in your suit. <laughs> so, yeah. But they don't do that. I don't know if they still do that. But yeah, I didn't get to do that because I was there before they set up. But I got to see my classmates go through all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, I think a lot of has changed. I know when I went through a law enforcement basic training, but when I went through Army basic training, back in those days, we had drill sergeants that were out of Vietnam. They had the combat infantry badges. The, these were folks that had been in the shit. They had been in a combat. There was no triggered and f having your feelings being hurt or being able to hold yeah. up a card and go, Oh yeah. Can you imagine your first day at the Academy? What, you, what oh, is that a, a card? Who has cards? What are you talking about? They is have these cards. Recruits can pull a card out of their pocket if they think that they're being emotionally traumatized. You gotta be kidding me. No. Are no? you serious? That's, yep. Uh, wow. <laughs> See yeah. what I tell you, too sensitive. Too sensitive. That means they're making up but we're gonna be a bunch of wimps. There is because you gotta have you gotta develop tough skin, and not everything is oh like not everybody's a winner, but that's okay because the losing is what builds character and motivates you to do better next time. Exactly. <laughs> I was at a, exactly. I was at a meeting uh, when we were recording this. I was in Orlando yesterday speaking at a big kickoff for a company, and um, they had a guy on there beforehand, and he 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 actually trains a lot of the NBA stars. He's a motivational speaker, but he works with a lot of the NBA stars. And the, you know what he said? He said, winning, winning doesn't build character to your point. Losing build, losing builds character winning yes. too much. Winning builds arrogance and overconfidence, mm -hmm. you know, and I agree a hundred percent. And so, no, I agree. I, and it, it's funny too, because just what you were saying there, there has to be winners and losers. I mean, the, 
because if not, if everybody, you know, if everybody, everybody gets a ribbon, everybody gets a certificate, it's like you bring the people who can, look, we all know that there's layers in society. There's some people who want to overachieve like a guest we might have on the podcast right now. (laughs) And And then there's people who do good. And then there's people who do just enough. And then there's people who don't give a shit, you know? Yeah. Right. And I got I to gotta throw out kudos to Morgan here. And when he came down to Orlando for this conference, he took the time to come by and say hi and check on Murph. So appreciate that, brother. Damn. Well, I had to, he was taking meds and the dude was getting loopy. We we're trying to record stuff. He goes, <laughs> I am Spartacus. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I wanted to go skinny dipping in the pool out back. You know? I mean, yeah, not with me there, pal. That would have been a crime scene. That would not have been good. That would not have been good. You know, it reminded me of another saying, though, Gina, and, and I've heard this saying, it, it's, you know, talked about men, but it said, uh, hard men make good times, good times make, uh, I think it's like easy times and easy times make weak men. In other words, like you think about the greatest generation, World War II and what they did, they made things good for the rest of us. But now that things are so good, we make it so easy on the other people. And what happens? Easy times create hard times, you know? Right. It's and we're kind of going through that cycle again. So it's like, I mean, but you persevered a lot. Like I said, you, you're there, um, you're at the DEA Academy. So let's let's start from there. You were doing push-ups your first day, right? In your no, suit. No, I, I didn't. Oh, you did Because I got there early. So I bypassed oh, all of that. Gotcha. I was, just, I was so happy to be our, there. <laughs> just so our listeners know, we're talking about Kate Jackson from Charlie's Angels now. Yeah, <laughs> we got we got this Kate Jackson here. <laughs> so you know it's not fair, Fawcett, because she tried the Texas Poofy here, and that didn't and work. And that did for not her. work. Yeah, that did not work. That did not go over well. <laughs> but yeah, I get to the academy, and I'm super stoked and like ready to go, hit the ground running. And we start into our classes. We have our PT the first um, right off the bat and all good. We had, we lose like two people. Actually, we lost three people. We lost a female. My class had started out with four females. Um, We had, I was, um, we had two white females, myself and a Hispanic female and a Hispanic female dropped out because she, she fell the, the PT the first week. So she was out. And then we lost two other individuals, two males, um, so the, 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 I was prepared for the PT. Everything was good. We started into our firearms and stuff. And it was so weird because coming from Texas, I know, or you can feel it in your gut when people are genuinely supportive of you, supportive of you. And when you're doing something good and they genuinely like, Oh, good. Versus when you do something, they're like, Oh, really? She's good at that. You know, (laughs) so when I went out onto the range, I assumed that they thought I was not going to be a good shot and I actually ended up being a good shot. So it was kind of like a silence over the range when they first saw me shoot because my groups were so crazy tight. Um, And I was I was happy. I was proud. I was excited to be at the academy. I was like, I'm doing this. The first federal agent, the first like for law enforcement in my family, other than my uncle, who was a um, police chief for, um, a deputy police chief for Fort Worth um, police department. There was no other law enforcement. And so I was super excited and I'm going to my classes and mind you, I had just come out of the Dallas police academy because I was only on the Dallas PD for two and a half years. So pretty much the, the academic side of it was a, a refresher, adding the federal laws, right? So they would ask a question in class and I would be like, it would be like silence. And I would be like, well, I know the answer. So I'm like 
You were that person in class. Oh, call on me, Mr. Cotter, Mr. I know the answer. And I wasn't like that. I would literally <laughs> wait to see if someone was going to respond. But I'm like, if you know the answer, just, re-. but everybody was quiet. So I would like raise my hand ask, and I would ask the question. And then it got out that I was um, arrogant. I'm a know-it-all. Okay. Wow. This isn't good. And it wasn't, it wasn't my counselor that was telling me this. It was other people, other people on staff were saying, were doing the talking about me and my personality and what they felt I was doing or not doing. So at this point, I'm not, um, I'm arrogant. I'm a know-it-all. So when I get into that, then I was like, okay, well, I'll stop answering. I'll stop answering questions. I won't do that anymore. And so now I'm not answering questions and the class is like dead. And now I'm labeled as I'm disgruntled. I'm not participating. And I'm like, okay, I can't win for losing on this stuff. So I just kind of, I start to get frustrated and I'm, I'm that type of person. Like one of my, um, my female, um, classmates, she really struggled at everything except for academics. She was super smart, um, academically, but she struggled with firearms. She struggled with PT she struggled and I would literally like help her. I would, we would do defensive tactics together on the weekends. We would run together. We were like white on rice together. Um, and I was like that with everybody. Cause like I said, I pretty much just finished one Academy and going into another one, I, my handcuffing, everything was still fresh in my head. So I would help people because they would, most of the times they would ask for my help and I would help. So it, it frustrated me when I felt like I, I, somebody put a target on me. And I say a target is when it became clear that some people at that academy did not want me to be at the academy. And started to do different things to me and talk about my character in a manner that caused my classmates to be like, wait a minute, something's going on with her. We can't really be hanging out with her because we don't want whatever her problem is to become our problem. Right? So I was kind of like, isolated in my class because nobody wanted to be associated with me because, um, well, on the one hand you answer too many questions. And then when you don't answer questions, it, it's angry. Like it's I'm, crap. Yeah. It's almost like you're an angry black woman who's oppressed, who's tired of the, of all, of all you guys. And you know, it's like, it's almost that same trap they try and pull people into. Now, did this cause problems from a disciplinary standpoint? Do you think that you were subjected to discipline or anything? No, I never. I this is a crazy thing, and I'll, as the story progresses, this is weird. Well, first but question I, is: Did you ever have to write a memo? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> listen, well, listen. I never wrote a memo in the academy. I wrote a lot of a memos in my hiring process because remember, I told you I had considered credit that was questionable. And then my mom had put stuff in my name that I didn't know that was in my name. So I had like repos on my credit when the the, um, DEA started pulling my stuff. And I didn't, and I was was like, how did DPD miss this? Because I didn't even know that these things were on my credit report, but DEA, they did a more in-depth. And if it wasn't for my my background investigator, who at the time DEA was doing their own background investigations. And I tell you, the individual that had mine, he is the reason I'm on the job because he was like, Regina, when he called me and he's like, okay, we found A, B, and C on your, your, in your background, on your credit. 
what is the issue? And I told him, I was like, I don't even know about that. And he was like, okay, this is what you need to do. Talk to your mom, talk to the creditor, see if they can work out something where you can get these taken care of, um, do what you need to do, and then write a memo. So I learned how to write a DEA memo before I became a <laughs> DEA agent. <laughs> and so I did all that and got everything in a manner where either, because my mom was like, well, you're ever working now. You can take care of it. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. So I had to clear up all this debt scenario and write memos and explain, okay, I called and I'm on a payment plan for this car or this whatever. And, and, and the, as far as the credit cards, I wasn't in the same position, but I did have some credit card debt. Um, but I never had like late because I'm the person. I'm paying 10 days ahead to make sure once you get it, if you hold it, I'm still going to be on time because, you know, it's not going to be my fault. So um, my credit was, I had a credit cards, but I didn't have what I had when I graduated from, from college. So, um, so yeah, I learned how to write memos before I even came on the job, but I didn't, I never wrote a, a memo in the academy because my feedback in the academy was mostly good from my counselor, um, from people at the academy who were not necessarily my in my class circle, but were like teachers at the academy, instructors or counselors for other classes, because I guess they get together and talk about stuff. And I would, I would literally sometimes just be walking in the hallway, going to a, a particular place, and people would tell me, "Regina, hang in there. You're going to get through this." And I'm just like, so. They're not even a part of my class. How do they know what's going on? Because there's only three things you really get measured on in the academy, right? That's firearms, academics, and PT, right? Yeah. And and then we and we have practicals, which I didn't have any issues with that. Yeah. So what I'm saying is you look at those four things, you've got to be acing those or pretty close to acing all of those. So it's not a performance issue with you. No. At least not that they document it and not that any of my instructors verbalize during my training. So so let me ask you, it's a tough question, but um, you tell me if you want to address it like head on, but do you think that they were biased against you because of your race, your instructors there, or did they just not know how to handle somebody like you who was achieving? In other words, I got this feeling that they come in, they go, oh, here's somebody who was a checkbox. We had to hire her because she's a minority. So we expect her to perform here. But yet when you're outperforming everything, I don't know if they were upset because you're outperforming the expectation or if it's just because you were black. Um, I think it was a combination of those things. There were people at the academy that clearly did not want me to be there. And I say that because what happened was, remember I told you when I came in, my groups were tight. But I'm also an individual who's never touched guns until I became involved in law enforcement. So I only knew what the people who trained me told me. Line up my sights. Line up the back and front sights and aim it in the center. Your target should be blurry in the back and you'll hit the center every time. Slow on your trigger full, breathe, you know, relax. <laughs> so I was doing all that. So just before we start in DEA, you have two times when you qualify. You qualify midway through the academy and then the final. And you have to pass both. So I get to the mid qualifications. Um, but before that, our um firearms instructors were doing adjustments to people's guns. My classmate was holding a clipboard and my um, bay instructor asked me for my gun. And my classmate tells him her name's not on here. And he says, oh, yeah, I know. But I remember something being wrong with her gun. OK, I give him my gun. He's my bay instructor. Don't tell me they messed with your sights. 
they mess with my sites. You got to be shitting me. They mess with my sites and I'm, and I'm still going through practice and I'm like, what is going on? I'm like all over the place. I'm lining stuff up and I'm getting more and more frustrated because I'm like, I'm doing what I was taught to do. Why is this not working? So I fail mid-quals. Complete, I mean, I fell miserably because I just could not get it together once they didn't move my sites. And I go into um, who was the executive assistant's um, office to have my conversation because basically he's telling me if I don't pass finals, the final qualifications, I'm going to be dismissed. I won't become an agent. And I'm literally crying because I'm like, I don't understand what happened. I don't understand. And he tells me, he says, you're not going to be a good agent. And I'm like, excuse me. He says, look at you, you're crying. You're not going to be a good agent. And I said, sir, I looked him dead in his face and I said, sir, please don't mistake these tears for signs of weakness. I said, I was a police officer. I know I can't cry on the street, nor will I. I said, I'm crying right now because I'm disappointed in myself because I don't understand what went wrong. Right. And he was like, well, whatever. Well, you'll be, you'll be in remedial, blah, blah, blah. So I, (laughs) so I started my remedial. And another thing that I do, because I'm all about, if there's an issue, let me do what I can do to get over the issue. And at this point in time, there was no problem with what I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you that I started doing. So on the weekends, because even though I, I failed the mid quals, that was not one of those things that kept you from leaving the compound (laughs) to say, or Quantico. So I was still free to go out on the weekends. And I spent my time on the weekends, me and another guy who was a super sharp shooter, we started going to an indoor range. He would take me to an indoor range and we would practice. And my groups started to come back. And he, it gets back to the academy that I'm going to this range because then other people start wanting to go to the range. And they call us in and they said, no, you cannot allow to go to an outdoor range anymore. Why? And I'm like, because you're using guns that we don't know what their sites are like and they could be teaching you bad habits. You're not allowed to go. I mean, I'm spending my own money, my own time. And now you're telling me I can't go to the range, i.e. you don't want me to improve in this area. Were you now were Unbelievable. with your DEA weapon? Did it have to stay on campus or is that yes. the one you were? Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. We, we left. We can't, we were not, we lock them up. We turn them in at the end of every um, practice. And you had one, everybody had their own weapon, right? It yes. was assigned to you. Yes. You what did. were you shooting at that time? Um, the Glock uh, 22. Glock 22, which is a really big gun. And I didn't know, I found out years later that I could have asked for a smaller gun. So they really had a gun that was too big for my hand. It was a 40 caliber, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. I've got the Glock 23, but I can tell you, even with the Glock 22, those, you got to have good sized hands for those. I mean. Yeah. And I went for, like I say, almost 20, no, 19 years with that Glock. I, I still had the same gun accident until I went to headquarters, but before I realized I could have asked for a, a smaller handgun. Um, but anyway, so they shut that down. So nobody can go to the outdoor range anymore. I mean, to a, the uh, range outside of the academy anymore. So I'm like, this is crazy. So I only have my practice time because I'm in remedial. So I have firearms and then we have because in firearms, we moved on to like long, long guns and stuff. So nobody's really practicing with their handgun anymore. But because I'm in remedial, I'm still dealing with my, my handgun. So I realized in practice that for me to hit the center of the target, I have to aim to the right of the, of the excuse me, to the left of the target to hit the center. 
So I'm basically lining my- Kind of the old Kentucky windage thing. You know, you just Mm -hmm. figure out where you need to aim so you can hit. And that's what I was doing. And so that's what I was doing through remedial. And my group started coming back. And my very last remedial section, my my normal um, instructor was not there. Somebody was filling in for him. I don't know where he was, but the, the guy that came in, he was he was watching me shoot or whatever. He says, Patterson, where are you aiming at to hit the target? And I told him, I said, sir, I don't know what the problem is. I said, but for me to hit the target, I have to aim over here and then it hits the center. And he was like, let me see your gun. And he looks at my gun and he says, the sights are off. He's like, what happened to your gun? I was like, they changed my sights just before mid-quals. And he was like, that's messed up. And he put them back. And I was like, I only had that practice to work with them back in place. So that kind of made me nervous, but I still had the principle. So if you have the principle, it should work if your everything is aligned with your sights. So my groups were back and I go and I take the, the mid-quals and I, and I mean the final quals and I pass. And I'm thinking in the story, they can't do anything to me now. I pass um, the academics with no problem. I have no problem with the PT because what I did with the PT, um, my actually the recruiter, uh, my background investigator told me when you go to the academy and Terry said the same thing, when you go to academy, always show an improvement. Every test you take, show an improvement. And so I literally would plan now, wait out. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You sandbagged at the beginning, <laughs> didn't you? So you could show improvement. I didn't sandbag. I just didn't give all my potential. That's called sandbagging. <laughs> I'd like it to say I didn't give all my potential, but okay. Yes, I sandbagged. Now, what you did is you had an arc of improvement that you were shooting for. So Yes. And I would literally, every time before we went and took our, um, our PT um, test, and I think we took it four times while you're at the academy. We took it four times. And each time I said, okay, when I go in today, I'm going to do 75 push-ups or whatever, 50 sit-ups. I wrote it down to actually have an improvement every time. And I have my little paper. And when I got to that, I would just stop. And I think that I think that annoyed the instructors because my instructor, my um, DT instructor, he told me, um, Patterson, you're not training. You're not, you're not trying hard. And he, I was like, why do you say that? So he says, goes, I won't believe that you're trying until I see you throw up. I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, I'm in shape. I'm never going to throw up, you know? But the other thing that the other giveaway was you weren't breaking a sweat. Yeah. I just did a hundred pushups. Not bre- I'm not glistening. I, you see me glisten? I, no. <laughs> I, I got to the point where I was glistening. I did push myself. I didn't just like, you know. Yeah. But that's after you quit sandbagging and got to your potential. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And he would literally have our, a short run for us would be like six miles. And I used to love running until the DEA Academy. And after that, I hated running because he would literally think, okay, so we would run maybe five miles. He'd take us, bring us back to the track. And when you hit the track, the track is like, we're done. He would have us run the track and we're sprinting in because we're like, this is the end of the run. And then he'd take us back out again. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I just gave my all on the sprint in and we're going back out. So I just, when I, when I realized he was playing that type of game, I just stayed at one pace, just stayed at one pace. I was not, I can't kick in until I know that it's the last of the last. Hey players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out as always on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. 
In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.